Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, DGENs and DGENettes, to another episode of the Alfalfa Podcast. We are four radically moderate entrepreneurs and investors swimming in the messy gray ocean, serving up alpha in money, politics, and life. We are Nick Urbani, Stephen Cesaro, Eric Johansson, and I am Armand Asadi. All links at alfalfapod.com. Do us a favor, hit that subscribe button, give us some love, leave us a review, and follow us on socials. And if you want to jump in the community, hang out with us in between episodes, hop into our Discord, which is also at alfalfapod.com. And I was thinking about this, I was like, does everyone even know what a Discord is? Discord is basically like the AOL instant messenger of 2022. That's the way I'll describe it to you old folks like us. Um, so hop in, be anonymous. You don't even need to get your name out there. Let's be weird. And uh, all hanging out. The community is growing. Cheers, boys. Salud. Excited for the episode. Cheers. All right. What's the, what's the money today? Let's do the agenda. So the money section is the lies Bitcoiners told you. This was a Steven suggestion that I'm, I'm very excited to dive into. Um, for politics, we have Biden's gas tweet, which really uh, perturbed us a few days ago, which we'll dive into. And uh, for life, we're going a little more uh, light and fun, and um, we're going to kind of spread our wings and travel. We're going to talk to you about all of our all the places that we've been. Well, let's see where the discussion goes, but um, we're going to talk about world travel, what it's done for us, share some tips, um, and maybe some future plans and things like that as well. Uh, I know a lot of our... Uh, Community is international, so that'll be a fun one. Um, let's dive into the alfalfa round. Let's do it. So, what's today? Today is July 6th is when we're recording. Um, let's see. Alfalfa round. Last week, I bought some SBY puts. Mm. Um, again, kind of hedged the downside of the equities portfolio. Um, still think earnings decrease could could take us down to like 3200 3400 in the S&P. If not, all good. You know, kind of still net long. Um, but uh, I feel better with that safety blanket in place for some reason. Um, and then uh, also place some ETH uh, buy limit orders, some of the 900s, 800s, 700s, kind of getting increasingly larger as the price goes down. Still think there's a 40% chance we, we go lower from here. Um, I feel better kind of might having to chase it uh, back up if, if we don't go down there then then kind of just buying right now i think like patience 40 percent. you are very bullish yo you think it's higher than 50 percent? that we go lower than here yeah like just e- this price right now well i mean let's say or like new, new all-time Tri- lows e- i guess yeah that's more okay what I'm yeah. okay yeah <clears throat> i think it's more than 50 percent, but 40s 40s okay yeah i'm okay with that i think it's pretty bullish so anyway, got them set up. I hope they get triggered. Yeah, I we'll like see. Yeah. I like that. I, I got take the same approach with ETH. Uh, you know, I've been telling you guys, I've been telling the discorders that I'm I'm just selling puts, which is essentially like placing limit orders. I'm just getting paid to do it, and I'm happy to do that. Um, Steve and I were talking about today on FTX US. They're physically settled. That's important because like on a, on a lot of platforms, they're cash settled. So if I were to lose those contracts, I wouldn't. I wouldn't be long ETH there. I would just lose the cash if I lose. But in this scenario, if I lose those contracts, I actually buy ETH at, at those strike prices. And, and that's what I'm hoping for. And, and you're, you're selling the right amount of puts so that you're, you're happy to have the cash on the sideline to, to, to purchase those when, when, if yeah, the time yeah. comes. And you know, like, I think the, the real question is, do I buy here or should I wait for this like 
pullback that may or may not happen. And, you know, I, I'm, I'm kind of in Steven's camp where it's like, I, I'm expecting us to, to not go to a new all-time low immediately, but, you know, maybe we'll just grind down there over a longer period of time. I actually, um, I think we're actually going higher from here. And uh, I closed all my shorts. I closed all my shorts and I considered going levered long. Uh, probably should have. I mean, <laughs> yeah. prices are higher. I, did, I didn't take that uh, bullish approach, but I, I did close all my shorts. And I, I do see a scenario where it's like this bounce that sort of we've all been waiting for might happen. And it's like, there are catalysts looming. That's, that's the reason. There are catalysts looming that could surprise some people. And, you know, I, th- I think it is most likely we continue down. But. Just, just curious, how levered long were you going to go if you were? Well, I was considering doing a 3X. So like Yee. 3X is not too crazy, actually. Like you can go up to 30. Like I was just thinking about three. Just because the UI says 30. <laughs> yeah. Three felt comfortable and like liquidation price is fine. Yeah, I was yeah, like, yeah. okay. Well, I like that. I, could do I like this. that. Um, but yeah, uh, that's that's my approach. I closed the shorts. I'm looking to get back in on the short side because like it it's still a bearish environment. There's no question about that. It's just I'm, I want to get the right prices. Cool. Cool. Cool, man. Cool. Must be nice to be on the right side of a trade. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't go long. Oh, all right. Well, yeah. I'm I'm currently underwater. I'm watching the watching the market run away from me as we speak. Just the little lines going up, up. What's up, the price up. of ETH right now? Uh, ETH at eleven eighty five right now, which is send it substantially higher than my uh, short price. So that's fun. <laughs> send it. Also watching gold puke uh, trade that I was uh, telling Rick I was going to take the other day. Rick was a big uh, gold bull, and I was like, no, I'm going to short this shit. And then I, I didn't because I drank all weekend. And uh, gold puked today, so uh, <laughs> I didn't. How, uh, I didn't, how were you going to short gold, by the way? What was the vehicle you're going to use? I think that's a good I was probably going to do alpha it alpha on, uh, what's it called, Quinta? Oh, you're going to do it. Uh, yeah, I don't want to. Yeah, crypto, crypto like moving gold. money into the real world. Yeah. You know, so I was going gonna, gonna to test it out, see how it did. Um, gold over the dollar. The dollar's so good right now. The dollar, the dollar is still going to the moon. I don't short the dollar. Oh, um, well, you only playing shorts? I was, sh- yeah, I wanted to short gold. Got it. Gold to me looked like literally the the ETH chart from a month ago, yeah, or two months ago. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think gold's going to probably do pretty bad in an environment like this for the the near future. I think it'll be a good trade. Um, maybe I don't know. You know, a yearish from now, two years, who knows? But it just seemed like that it just seemed like it's going to like 1600 bucks um and it, yeah a big big move down today meanwhile uh yeah bitcoin's <laughs> bitcoin and ether breaking out so uh i'm gonna be drinking a lot of wine on this pod the the uh alpha alpha for the week is is don't don't copy trade me fade him fade steven harmon what you got brother i do a goddamn thing i've been too busy to like to crypto, Ooh, to trade. Busy as in uh, celebrating the 4th of July weekend. <laughs> Literally had friends in town, had a three and a half day weekend, um, and uh, had an epic party at my friend Steven's house. That was a nice little cap to the whole thing. <laughs> Sounds like a cool guy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You should get to know him. Um, and um, I would say the the big alfalfa for me, the thing I'm most excited about right now is I finally ordered the, uh, the eight sleep. The eight sleep pad, which oh. was uh, one of Steven's best purchases mm-hmm. of all time. So there's a lot of people that just purchased this over the fourth of July. I, I'm pretty weekend. sure I sold three of those. Yeah, things. my brother that, just uh, got drinks. one. Nick Minuch just got one. Dang. Like 
could have had a whole ETH from those affiliate commissions. I know. Yeah. You should have. You should have scammed us on. So eight slate three listening sponsorship, please. We'll be reaching out to you either Thank way. You. Um, I actually use Tim Ferriss's coupon code. That son of a jackal. God bless him. <laughs> just keeps making money. Um, so he, he could use the help. He needs it. Yeah. <laughs> hey, man. Guys, he really shows some luck. good stuff. So very excited for that. Should be here soon. And uh, yeah, honestly, haven't done a lot. Oh, I listed a few more NFTs that I thought I was going to hold for a little while longer. I listed my 10K TF NFTs. Um, you know, I was like, oh, let me wait for those to go back up to like a two ETH floor. But I was like, nah. Let me just start listing. That, that's those. the that's mm. in the ape ecosystem, right? Yep. Yeah. Okay. You got. That reminds me. I'm pretty sure I uh, bottom ticked uh, Nakamoto cards last week. So that'll be you bought be you more? bought more of those. Huh? No, I sold. Oh, <laughs> but I'm pretty sure I'm pretty sure I'm the bottom tick. Yeah, yeah, we're gonna look back like three years from now. Like, Fade this man. Hey. <laughs> yeah. Oh yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna cold. I got a cold hand right now. Don't. Drucker Miller would size Drunken, you down yeah, so fast you're, you're right done. now. Yeah, Stanley would tell me it's it's time to take a vacation. Yeah, go to Africa for come six back months. and then completely flip all my positions to the opposite direction. I feel like you guys are looking for things to do. There's nothing to do right now. I, th- that is actually very insightful. I should just be sitting on my ass, but like I just want to trade. That's fun. It's, I, 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 I took a trade at a it was a bad point to take a trade it was like in the middle of like kind of no man's land yeah. I was just kind of in a gambling mood it was it was it was bad yeah, don't I, I make mistakes lots of them we all do all right so what are these Bitcoin son of a jackals lying about oh well, yeah that, how are we gonna set this one up wow that was yeah. that was kind of an awkward segue no it's, I feel like you can do better awkward. segues no than that. let's go right into it. <laughs> Are you the Segway King now? Yeah, I'm, I'm the segue, segue critic. Right. Yeah, clearly. <laughs> <laughs> I have so, no comments. Just well, well, I, I, I literally have no critic. <laughs> just segues. How about just I should, am a critic? Should, should, I, should I tee it up for people? Yeah, there you go. Yeah, please. Yeah, so there, uh, price was pretty boring last week, but there was drama in Bitcoin. We had uh, Nick Carter, very well-known Bitcoiner. Uh, I think he's a VC by trade, but he's he's written a lot of pro Bitcoin stuff. Although he's not like a hardcore maxi, although he may sound like it. But he 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 tweeted something pretty innocuous. I think he is tweeting that they they his VC firm invested in some company that just does kind of like authentication via like private keys, a kind of wallet sign in. Like instead of using Facebook sign in or Google sign in, you might use this like a Web three. Yeah, yeah, which like kind of seems like one of the. No, better use cases we've come up for, I would love that. to this stuff we need it so far and um yeah the uh, the kind of uh the proverbial swarm of bitcoin hornets like came at him on twitter they started just calling him like a sellout or some shitcoin uh supporter even though the thing he invested in doesn't have a token um like just re- really they brought his like dad into it and all sorts of it was it got pretty nasty to the point where he he wrote a medium piece um was it called Set- setting the record straight or like a al- alternate title like a, a eulogy for maximism mm-hmm. maximalism um and yeah he just kind of uh cleared the air on what he did and then kind of dunked on the maxis a little bit he did it a Appearance on the uh, Bankless Pod yesterday and changed his Twitter handle to NickCarter.eth, even though he doesn't own a .eth, but he's just in full. He's trolling. He's kicking the nest, right? Um, so, I mean, I I watched all this go down. I, I read the I, I read the Medium post. I'm really sympathetic uh, to Nick, uh, and it 
it reminded me of like a lot of, I mean, I don't, I don't own any Bitcoin right now. I, I sold the rest of my Bitcoin a little while ago. I've, I'm not super anti Bitcoin, but like I've just kind of struggled with finding a, a good narrative for it because as, as time has sort of gone on, like they, Bitcoiners have been painting this like picture and kind of selling this dream to people for a while. And, and I, I think a lot of the things that, especially like new play, I, I'll be okay. Right. I bought, I bought my first Bitcoin at 300 bucks and I bought the rest of them at like $1,500 or something like I, I'm going to be all right. But like a lot of people came in and they bought, they bought the 69 K top on these hopes and dreams of million dollar Bitcoin, or the, at least like, I remember last year people were, people were talking about, Oh, 300 K. Well, Bitcoin. you, uh, talked me into my first Bitcoin in 2019 when we first started doing these little hangouts. Mm-hmm. Left you so, in the dust. Um, the lies come from, <laughs> come from one and one person I, I still hold my Bitcoin. Yeah, I mean, should we? Well, this I don't. Yeah. I don't know if. Well, it, I think it's 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 okay to talk about is Bitcoin good, or bad? Is it investable? We can talk about that as well. I I, I think it's good to and I want to separate Bitcoin, the asset and the network, from the Bitcoiners, especially the ones who are sort of the loud voices on Twitter because that that that's who you will encounter as like yeah. a newbie to the space and who you will interact with and you may think that is what Bitcoin is and you're gonna kind of be spoon fed the same narratives that get perpetuated to the point where they just seem like consensus. Well I want I kinda wanna like ignore stuff. those guys because I don't think that's actually that hot of a take. That's like that's pretty obvious. Like Bitcoin maxis are stupid and let's just go into like what's what's like more interesting which is like the the nuance within it because like i think that's where more controversy exists i think like even nick carter is like bitcoin maxis are stupid so like i mean i don't think bitcoin maxis are entirely stupid i think there are elements of them that are stupid but i i I do actually think they they play like a sort of like a, a vital role in in like the uh if you think of like the whole crypto ecosystem as is like nature, right? Where there are these like weird animals who like eat some bug and somehow they hold the ecosystem together and you might not want to be those <laughs> animals, but they, they hold it to, together, right? It's it's kind of like what we have in, in the US, right? Where we have like this wide spectrum of politics, right? And I don't think anybody here wants to be like the sort of a rural guy living out in Alabama with like 900 guns and like flying his flag. But but like I, I think those people like provide like a valuable check in, in the ecosystem of sort of democracy and politics. Even though you might not want to be them, their existence kind of creates some sort of weird pseudo equilibrium. So I don't think they're like all bad. I want to throw baby out with the bath bathwater. I think there's some elements of maximalism that are that are good. But that being said, like for new people who got into the market, like they they were sold like multiple sort of bills of goods about Bitcoin specifically, right? Let's just so let's, focus there. Let's talk first. about those things that they that they show. Well, what, what do you guys feel like? I think we all have a lot of opinions on this, but what yeah. what do you feel like were the worst Bitcoin lies or takes of like the last bull cycle? Um, the number one was inflation hedge, I think is yep. one. Um, <laughs> and I think it is if you live in Turkey and there's a 50% right. annual inflation rate, like for, for those countries, it most certainly, I, I still think for Turkey, you're down, right? <laughs> like, you're <laughs> literally down I, I against I, the lira. I okay. think I, I think I probably even reject that in there. Like, I, I, I don't know. Do you see any evidence in the history of Bitcoin where it can be pointed to as like, well, I also hedge? think their argument is forward looking. 
right? It's obviously, you know, Bitcoin is considered this nascent technology. It's almost like a, a tech play now, but that I think their argument is, um, you know, in 10 years, 20 years, once it, you know, price stabilizes, you see some diminishing returns in the price and things kind of level out. It is this, um, you know, disciplining force against governments and their monetary policy because it has this, uh, hard cap. We we could talk about the hard cap, what is good or bad later. But I, I do think yeah. I, I think their argument is mainly forward looking, um, and that that might still hold because Bitcoin's inflation is much lower than fiat inflation across the board, probably. So like, I think that that could revert <clears throat> is is what you're saying, and and I agree with that. But isn't isn't the problem with all of their stuff? Like, all of the Bitcoin stuff to me seems like aspirational. It's a it's a shining city it, on the hill. It always has been. Spot. Right. Like it's not based in any current reality. But right? hold on. You you were one of these guys. So like where where were you on this? Because like nothing's changed. It's always been aspirational. Nothing nothing has ever sort of like existed to justify its market cap. Well, look, first of all, if you want to be in a market like crypto, like you have to be the the essence of sort of like strong opinions loosely held. Right. Like nobody knows what this asset class is going to look like in five years, never mind like right. 20 or 30. Right. So if you were going into this with like a dogmatic point of view where you just latch on to the first thing that sounds good and you you just you just never let go and hope you get dragged to right. Valhalla, like you're probably going to be in, in for a rude awakening. Right. So I've always been very shifty in my positions and my views. It's one of the reasons I hate giving people like advice on stuff because I will tell people to buy things. But then like six days later, I'll be like, ah, actually this, yeah, I'm yeah, short this that is now. terrible. <laughs> yeah. Like I, I do that all the time and I, I think it's totally, it's totally fine. Um, yeah. But when I first got into Bitcoin, Bitcoin was the only thing that existed, right? Like Ethereum mm-hmm. didn't exist. And, and we were still working through that narrative. Like a lot of, a lot of crazy things that get invented or set forth into the world. Like we have an idea of what the use case will be or what eventually will be sort of like the product market fit. But oftentimes like it it shifts dramatically and Bitcoin itself was like, Oh, it's going to be digital cash. And that ended up being like a really bad narrative. So it's, and Bitcoin has been doing this like pivot and pivot and pivot. And like after a while you got to say like, okay, this is like pivot number five here. We've pivoted from all these things. Meanwhile, if I look with my eyes objectively at what's happening in the world around me, you know, like Ethereum is the easiest thing to look at. Like right. Ethereum was not a riskless project. It's easy to look at it right now and be like, oh, this is such an obvious bet. I would argue even right now it still carries with it substantial risk. But especially like four years ago, right? Like that was not a sure bet. And Ethereum didn't know what, what it was trying to do. Yeah, I mean, more like, five years ago there wasn't we, we would talk about like one day there's gonna be these apps i wonder yeah. what the first app's gonna smart be. contracts yeah like i wonder what they're gonna develop on this network so yeah there wasn't much to do except yeah trade the coin so like like you can you can you can ultimately be like that that meme where the guy's like looking in the mirror like you're not wrong <laughs> <laughs> the the market's wrong <laughs> or you can just look at what's happening around you and accept the reality that for example, like ETH, right? Like Uniswap does more fees than the entire Bitcoin network, right? And 
in Ethereum and in aggregate, I think probably did. It does 10, 20 times the amount of fees as, as Bitcoin does on a, so a daily basis. I got another lie. I got another well, lie. Well, is that the second lie before we go go on? Is the second lie is that like that there's going to be some I, economic activity on top of this platform? That's another, that's another go. I was going to go a different direction, yeah. but I, I could also take that. I mean, that, well, I think that's the one we just covered. Yeah, just like, throw it out there. Just, let's, just, let's just shit on Bitcoin. Send it. For a bit. Okay, let's well, just, the other, <laughs> another clear lie is that um, the supply side is the determinant of Bitcoin price. So like stock to flow was pitched as this like unbreakable model that now looks like it's fucking stupid. <laughs> and it's because demand and supply both matter. Like that only looked at supply. That's wrong. It's I'll, clearly wrong. So I'll be honest, like uh, I think in early 2020, I was like getting it more interested in Bitcoin. Steven mentioned it. We'd all start talking about it. I think you mentioned it. And I was like looking for valuation models. And I'm like, okay, I just don't want to blindly invest in this thing. Like, there's got to be some published model or methodology to, to value one Bitcoin. And I saw a few. Saw like M2, um, you know, logarithmic regression. Uh, you could like calculate the cost of mining incremental Bitcoin was another one. But like stock to flow seemed the one that just got the most amount of play. And I, and I latched onto it because like I, you kind of wanted it to be true. Because at the time, Bitcoin was like six to ten thousand somewhere in there and it was tracking that pretty closely for a while too. it had been yeah but but i mean uh and i even sent around to people I'm like what do you think you know and uh it, it definitely i think i credit it for intriguing me enough to dive to dive deeper even though the other evaluation models you know seem seem sound but this one had the most i guess discussion around it so it did a good thing for probably tracking a lot of people in but obviously a bad thing in that you know the model is like not correct for multiple reasons. I think if you would have like extrapolated the model out, it was like well, because then you have the two x, and then you know that would say the Bitcoin price today should be like three hundred k or something, or or that like even in fifty, I don't know how many years, a hundred years, it was going to be worth two hundred billion, two hundred thirty five billion as a number I saw. If you just extrapolated his method out, um, so obviously with supply, coin? yeah, per coin, per <laughs> coin. Um, you know, like I wish supply was the only reason that would calculate because all of my one-on-one paintings might be worth, uh, <laughs> you know, infinite amount and I could uh, sell them for billions of dollars, but that's certainly not the case. Um, his also regression analysis. I think it depended on when I'm not a statistician or anything, but like, I think it depended on when you calculated his regression analysis, you know? So there's multiple things wrong with that thing, but the whole community sucked it up without very much pushback. I felt like, yeah. I mean, he did the ra- plan B did the rounds on every podcast multiple times. Good for him. Yeah. I think that the most, so there's like a few things that stand out to me. There's like, okay, we can go through the lies. Fascinating. And we can break down and we can shit on them. And I think that's great. We still should. There's the idea of like, are these lies in the first place? That's very interesting to me. And I think that's worth exploring. And maybe even more interesting than that, that I would just put on the side and hopefully we can get to is this idea of like the psychology and necessity for maximalism. Because that's the root of the lies. Okay. And Steven like alluded to that a little bit earlier and like good cases for this Bitcoin maximalism toxicity that exists that some people just label toxicity and move on. But what I think is most interesting about the lies, and there's many of them, is that when you are pioneering and setting the vision for something, you do have to keep pivoting. Like everyone here has at some point started some kind of business or pursued some kind of vision. And, you know, we've gotten into this a lot about a different topic before when it comes to like 
Tesla and Elon and things like that. I don't mean to bring that up for this specific example, but it's related in the sense that the job of the entrepreneur, the visionary, the pioneers in an organization or a community is to set a vision, to believe in it wholeheartedly, and to set an action plan and strategic game plan in place that then sets out to achieve that objective with milestones and with reasons why those things make sense and will benefit society and will cause people to want to be part of that vision as well. Now, you have to maintain a very strong hold on those ideas. They become like the doctrine of a religion. It does obviously become ideology. It becomes like dogma because it in essence, sort of has to, to exist. You see the same thing happen in companies, like where their culture becomes like dogmatic very quickly. And yet there's toxicity that is an equal opposition to the strength of the culture that exists at the same time. The more loose the culture is, the less it's strong and tangible, the more things tend to fall apart. But then what is there? There's equality, there's balance, there's less toxicity because everyone's voice is heard. No, if you want to move forward in a strong way, you can't have everyone's voice be heard and you can't have the new guy that got in in the 2021 cycle tell you how to run things when you when you're a bitcoin og so to that end while there are some absolute jackasses out there Mm -hmm. that clearly like we saw through this whole debacle with nick carter i think that to succeed it requires that to a certain degree and then you and then what do you do those turn into lies or things that you hope they turn into ideals that you hope happen and if they don't happen does it look terrible do people get hurt along the way 100% yes so many people get hurt by these lies but how do you ultimately achieve that vision i don't see any other way other than just like letting everyone's voices in and trying to compile this like vision that's ever evolving, which I think is more what Ethereum is trying to do. So yeah. very different strategies. Are you saying that like we wouldn't have got here to this place now without them, without the maxis kind of like, the I guess. Uh, acolytes, the yeah. early acolytes. Yeah, I think that's You know, fair. kind of uh, publishing the dogma out there. But this now, is but the war. The here. war is one of like that versus like, well, let's see if... Um, and maybe this is there's there's more uh, at play here, and there's more players in general. But let's see if the Ethereum approach wins out. I think that's really the ideological battle taking well, sure. place. Well, sure, like the Ethereum approach is turning into the Bitcoin it, approach. It like, is in many ways. Like they're becoming maxis and they're, in their own right. Yeah, and they're like, we need to be maxis to succeed, and then they're rewarding that in the ecosystem and in the community, saying like, speak up, stand strong, and hold on to these like ideals. I thought you made a good point that like what we're calling lies weren't necessarily lies. Like the, the stock to flow model, it wasn't a lie. It was an idea. I think it becomes a lie when the idea looks fundamentally flawed and mm. then they still keep trying to push it and push it and say, it's not broken. It's not broken. No. Uh, then it, then it can become a lie, but I don't think it, it was, uh, you know, like intended that's, to be malicious or anything. That's just a pathology. That's just like, it's so wrong. It's a lie it's in retrospect, yeah. but if that's it's only a lie a in retrospect lie. without intent, is it, Right. I think the, the intent was no. fine. And I, you know, it, it had a good fit for a long time. So uh, I just think but it's a lie now. There, there's some nuance, though, I think, between maybe some Bitcoiners who just push these narratives that they really, truly believe to be true because they want Bitcoin to be succeed, to, to succeed. But then you have people like like Plan B. And I, I don't I don't want to like completely dump all over Plan B, but there is an incentive to say things to boost your 
personal brand, right? So there's a point where you are just naively pushing stuff about Bitcoin because you love Bitcoin. And then there's also a point where you are getting some other ancillary benefit from it. And then things become kind of muddy. That's a great point. Happens to everybody. Happened to Tim Ferriss with 4-Hour Workweek, right? <laughs> Mentioned him at the beginning of the podcast. It's like he realized very quickly, if I double down on this 4-Hour Workweek thing and I turn everything into a 4-Hour you know, experiment to show you that efficiency is the answer to everything, <laughs> like eventually I'm going to get stuck in a, in a corner. So what did he do? He went tools of Titans. He went, I don't want to be the four hour guy anymore. And he quickly got himself out of there. Plan B did not and doubled down and is still sitting there going like, yeah, it'll work out. Don't worry. Yeah. I mean, all models are, are wrong and most models get proven most definitely wrong in, in the long term. So it would have been cool if he would have said, hey, this model got proven wrong. It, it doesn't seem that it's uh, held, but here's a here's a revision or here's my new thinking on it. And maybe, maybe he has and just never stopped listening to him and I haven't even noticed, but yeah, that would have been cool to see some iteration. But I wonder if like to Steven's point, if he, if he does waver, then he gets kicked out of the religion too. You know, like he, he can't, he can't do it because then now people are going to call him. Oh, well, you're, mm. you're not a true Bitcoiner anymore. That's the toxicity. Yeah. Like maximalism is like a, it's sort of like an autoimmune disease, right? Where there's some core function there that has like a purpose and, it, and, and it's a good purpose, right? In a specific quantity in a, like isolated, right? But if it sort of gets out of its box, it can just, it can just run haywire and it can sort of destroy the very thing it was trying to protect in the first place. And that's kind of what's happening here not so much that they're necessarily destroying bitcoin itself i think you can maybe make an argument for that from some of the you know technical development choices bitcoin is making right now but to, to me that's like a different debate like to me right now like bitcoin is hurting itself because they're pulling people in maybe not intentionally so but like people are being fed these narratives and they're going all in and then they're just becoming disillusioned and they'll just forever kind of hate this thing because they were promised this nice little like line equation that went up and this is an inflation hedge and like like and it 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 can be really destructive in the long run when you when you just wreck people like that like these coins have social layers and you can't just you can't just wreck your social layer and, and expect people to still want to be a part of the game. Not just the users or or the holders, but also the developers. I mean, like, I, I think there's been a brain drain from it, which is which is sad because like I, I like that there's a use case out there that is proof of work that does have a hard cap because I want to see how it plays out. Like I want to see what what happens. And right. I I bought Bitcoin a while ago. I'm gonna hold it. I'm not gonna add to it, but like I, I want to see how it plays out. And I wish they didn't, you know, incite this brain drain. So there were more developers, a lot more smart people working to, to develop on it. I haven't seen much action. Yeah. Well, Bitcoin, I don't why. think, I don't think, like we could all probably agree that we, it doesn't need smart contracts. It doesn't need DeFi. It doesn't need NFTs. It doesn't need uh, stable coins necessarily. Like, I, I think it could still succeed as a hedge against fiat monetary policy, independent of all that stuff. Against debasement. Against Maybe debasement. not inflation, but. Yeah. Inflation, but like an MMT hedge. MMT right. hedge. Can I uh, bring up another lie? And I think yeah. this is going to be a good one because uh, <laughs> I'm going to look at some of you in this group. When I brought it up myself, the first time when I was getting indoctrinated into Bitcoin, I, I said, um, are we sure this thing's going to be secure still once issuance is over? And a lot of people, 
including some of you in this circle, <laughs> told me that's a problem for 150 years down the road. It's a problem much sooner than 150 years down the road. Issuance is no longer going to secure the network much sooner than whatever was talked about when I first started learning about Bitcoin. What about in 40 years? What about in 40 years? 40, right. I mean, 40 years is a worthwhile number. And it's tricky to debate because like even to this day, if you were to ask somebody like, how much security do you need? Like people are still like, well, it's an arbitrary number. Yeah, It is like a bit of a vague question. Um, I am still kind of in the middle of the road on this. I, I, I think it's a concern and I think it's more of a concern than Bitcoiners say for sure. Um, you know, I, but like they won't even acknowledge that it's a, it's an issue. It, which which is a problem, right? right? It's like Bitcoin does have these elements of kind of religious, kind of zealotry, cult-like behavior where people get so wrapped up in it that they just they just reactively kind of just fight against the apostates and they don't they don't have any ability to kind of like self-reflect, right? It's this like kind of like hard shell defense mechanism that allowed it to kind of even exist in the first place, right? But now in its later years is sort of being counter counterproductive. Right. I mean, one measure of a, if a blockchain is stable is, you know, how profitable is it? Meaning like, you know, how much do they pay in security and in new issuance and how much do they collect in fees? And, you know, if you gave like Bitcoin a profit margin, I think it's like negative 99% or something like that. It only like captures, you know, less than 1% of the security cost in, in fees. And so I think most, I think we all agree that there is a security issue with it. My, my question comes back to as an investor, am I, am I, am I good for the next 10 years? Because, you know, if my, well, let's, let's call it now, if you're investing now, your 19K Bitcoin can still turn into 100K, you know, is it still worthwhile? But I, I think your, your point still remains like, um, I don't see any way the transaction fees are going to be able to, you know, turn. There's the, not even like a proper roadmap to get out <laughs> yeah. of this problem. And everyone's just saying like, don't even worry about it. It's, it's so well, far I, down the road. I, I am. I do think Bitcoiners don't pay enough attention to this issue, but also I am sort of sympathetic to the idea that it's either given what it's purporting itself to be right. Bitcoin is not giving itself any room to sort of end up in some middle ground state. It's basically like we are going to be the world's settlement layer, the world reserve currency, or we die, right? So if that's what they're saying, then like there is some logic to the idea that's like, well, the fees are either going to be there or they're not because that's a very polarizing outcome, right? So <laughs> never I don't been think, more bearish Bitcoin like, in my life. Yeah. Like <laughs> I don't think that's a good strategy, but if that is your pitch, I can get how you rationalize the security thing. But right? would you say that that's the only out for the security argument? is to become this like global settlement everything like well, right because the fees when, would be, might be I think when to. push comes to shove right especially if ethereum overtakes bitcoin like you're going to see like more of a push for them to like increase the supply or like hell recapture no. coins that are dead. it's it what's well, it if if we get to that point it's look you say it's never going to happen right but like these coins are similar to living organisms. When they get cornered and they go into survival mode, they will sometimes do things that you wouldn't expect. Yeah. I, I just like the idea of them Maybe kind of like one. toning no. down the scope of work 
You know, like we're not going to become the global settlement layer. We're not going to become the like universal, you know, uh, currency. We're just going to be one of the store of values. I love that uh, Nick Carter <laughs> in the in the Bankless episode says, these guys think they're going to be the, the world's reserve currency. They're not even the reserve currency of crypto. Right. <laughs> Who prices their NFTs or, you know, other, you know, DeFi tokens or to that, I mean. Bitcoin. That that reminds me. I, I think the worst kind of, I, I guess we'll call it lies because I don't have a better better word for it, but like the worst kind of story that's been sold to people is this idea that because all the fiat currencies are going downhill, like everybody's going to jump ship and get on board Bitcoin. But like, but, but why? Like why Bitcoin over a stable coin? Why Bitcoin over like gold? Why Bitcoin over like there, why Bitcoin over a like over U.S. ETH. stock that pays strong dividends and has good it's, cash it's, flows? It's the like, dollar. There, like there are there are a lot of things that money can flow to to sort of hedge itself against debasement, right? So to me, that's not like an incredible narrative. Like the obviously the, the the best thing about Bitcoin you could say is that it's that plus like you can't have your wealth confiscated, but right. It, it's like, and you a, can take it with you. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but like a lot of those narratives kind of bleed over into other assets. They bleed over into ETH. They bleed over into assets that live on ETH that might accrete value to ETH, but are completely separate assets to, to ETH and Bitcoin. It's like, there's just so much gray area there. I think there's a few bull cases kind of left is like one, just this experiment of like, what happens if we have a hard hard money, a hard cap, and we use proof of work? That's that's one bull case. Is like if you want to, you know, invest in that in that uh, scenario. <clears throat> excuse me. It still, uh, I think, remains as a liquidity suck. When there's easy money, when M two goes up, it is one of the first ones to kind of accelerate. So that's that's another one you could just use it as that. I still think you know the disciplinary force against fiat governments and monetary policy is another one, and then another one that's been come up more recently is uh you know regulation like they've been the ones to kind of cozy up to regulators uh and probably michael saylor the most out of out of mm. anyone in the community and for some reason they've gotten this uh you know hall pass uh yeah. i think it's the first time i've heard gary gensler you know just in the last couple of weeks admit to jim kramer of all people that like you know i'll only mention this coin yeah, i Bitcoin won't mention is a commodity is a commodity which yeah. you know defers the cftc which just implies like i think looser God, regulation there's like so much irony in this there's like so, the, there's like a of lot. all the features that bitcoin purports to have like the thing it does the best is lobbying like the actual <laughs> hedge against fiat you know government monetary policy and it's just like is, we, we've seen this thing play out a lot right where is, is it Bology who talks about this, that you can have like a good product or you can have like distribution? And if your product sucks, you try to control the distribution. That kind of feels like what's happening with Bitcoin. Like the product, like I don't want to say it sucks, but it sucks for a lot of the things it's purported to do. There's a lot of other stuff out there. They're kind of losing the adoption use case and a lot of the ways we would measure adoption. So they're going to the distribution. They're going to like the regulatory capture thing. It, and it's like, and I know not all Bitcoin people do this, but I see a lot of Bitcoiners like cheering on Twitter, like 
rooting for the SEC and Gensler to declare ETH a security, right? And it's just this thing we see play out in so many other things where people are willing to sort of like compromise their values because they're so sure that they're right and that the world would be a better place if they can just assert their will and just get, and then I'll back off and then everything will be fine. And then all the principles are compromised. And it's just like, what have we even done at that point? It's, it's a kind of, it's kind of crazy to me watching it play out in real time. Yep. Sure. Yeah, you want to move on? I think we, uh, I think we poked the hornet's nest yeah. enough. Maybe not as much. <laughs> I have as we, more to say about that, but yeah. I mean, I want to, I want to hear your opinion. It's well, good, it's, it's always combo. theoretical. <laughs> like, bring there's us always home. Something. Bring us to the ten thousand. Theoretical, philosophical that I have to say about it, but I just still think that it's it's really interesting seeing how what it takes for a community to succeed in the long run, and like. Is it necessary for a certain level of like maximalism to exist, which I always thought was a very negative thing. Mm. But the more I think about it, I can see the arguments both for and against it. What I wish, what I want to see, what I would like to see is Bitcoin to understand that it's it's not in competition with Ethereum or anything else. I mean, that's basically what was just discussed the last 20 minutes. It's like, get real about who you are and what you are and align yourself maybe with others like in a more strategic way don't let go of like capitalism as an ideal don't let go of competition and wanting to be number one and wanting to win but if you are no longer number one in market cap if you are no longer the best um you know if you don't become like the settlement layer it's okay in crypto maybe maybe you can still become the global settlement layer like of I don't know if that, how do you how do you achieve one without the other right that is the irony yeah, of that but statement it's not a zero sum game like it's not. you can welcome all the innovation in the crypto space and and know that like your well I guess they do have loftier goals than we take you know give them credit for but like uh yeah. still it's it's not a zero sum game like it it all helps to that point yeah. I have one more thing I want to say is that like I got into a a Twitter uh, back and forth with a bitcoin maxi friend of mine and he was saying well why would you build decentralized finance on uh, a foundation of sand, which is that's what he's calling ETH, and when you could build it on like bedrock, which is uh, Bitcoin. And I said, my response is like, great. If you can build it on Bitcoin, I would in all likelihood be an avid user of that. And and I'm not like rooting for one or the other. I just I just want DeFi. So if you can build on Bitcoin, I'll, I'll use is, it there. Is, is that the other lie that uh, Bitcoin is super decentralized? I mean, they have over a million... Plus mining rigs, but I think the but like Bitcoin is the most. But the, two but the mining top, pools, top three, uh, I yeah. think is like fifty percent of the hash power. And I think totally. any individual rig or miner can like leave the pool. Obviously, if if they start doing weird stuff, but yeah, I mean it. It probably is a lot of centralized hash power. Is what you're saying, and I agree. Yeah, but that is that is another big lie that people talk about. This idea that even if all this other stuff is built elsewhere. It will all eventually come back home to Bitcoin. Yes. Right? Mm-hmm. It'll all come back. And that has happened in precisely zero cases so far. <laughs> and it's it's possible that Bitcoin is just playing the really long game. Right. Possible. I will concede that. They're playing a hundred year game. But like as as John Maynard Keynes like said, like in the long run, we are all dead. And I want to retire and buy a boat and yeah. send all my future kids to a nice college. So I want to do the trade. That is going to be good for the next five years, the next 10 years. I don't want to like be involved in some centuries-long ideology yeah. that might not play out. I'm not saying that's going to be what Bitcoin is. But if that 
is the thing. Like, I don't, I don't want to sign up for it. it makes me want to talk about Solana now. Oh, <laughs> save that. Save oh, that. Keep it in your pants for next, yeah, yeah. next Just time. really funny how analogous this all is to the real world. Like, nothing changes. Uh, things do change over time. Don't get me wrong. But, like, everyone, I think, in so many ways expects the world of crypto, Web3, to be different and to have new rules and to start to work toward like what utopia could have looked like because we hit the reset button or really we hit the start game button it's a new game but all of the human behavior that we've ever seen it all just flows right over into into crypto it's the same game just different format and i wish what we would see is like more collaboration in the areas where it makes sense while you maintain the competition like like if you were going to recreate capitalism this is your opportunity like to see a new form of capitalism play out in crypto would be fascinating but it's it's exactly the same but i think that's why guys like hoffman are so excited about um these uh like layer on optimism right you have like these incentives to like uh give back to the to the builders and stuff. And that's where Ethereum thinks that it's doing the right things and playing the right way and playing a very different game and not really paying attention to what Bitcoin is doing. I, I, I say in that way, competitively, woo, that was close. Good competitively, <laughs> good good for them. Like, yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. I love that. Yeah. Well, okay. we'll all face the uh, day of uh, Bitcoin reckoning. According to them, uh, the book of Revelation will God, come true. I want to rant about this for no, another no. hour, but we'll move I know. On. So <laughs> does anyone have um, Joseph's tweet? Okay, let's talk about Joseph's tweet. I, I think I had it pulled up here. Thank you, sure. Joseph. Okay, so uh, Joseph tweeted on July 2nd, my message to the companies running gas stations and setting prices at the pump is simple. This is a time of war and global peril. Bring the price you are charging at the pump to reflect the cost you're paying for the product and do it now. Uh, you got to say it in the Biden Sorry, voice. I, couldn't, I couldn't stop laughing. Say, what I was saying? Do it now. The, the creepy whisper? <laughs> oh, Can you down. sniff my hair while you do it? Yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So... Uh, I can kind of give a little more context and we kind of see see where this goes because the thing is like incensed a lot of people even brought uh, Jeff Bezos out of his uh he's got kind of a hole took a, of took a, took a break between doing things with his little little lady friend on his mega yeah, yacht he, somewhere just to got him got him uh, you know tweaked enough to to come out of his and hole. He's like, and, wait, what am I doing? I am having a great life. <laughs> I'm not too rich to get involved <laughs> in this. Um. So I think it's it's important to clarify that like the the price of gasoline, what we pay at the gas, comes from a few different places. It comes from obviously the price of crude oil, which is the the oil price that we talk about uh, quite a bit, and that's the the majority of it. Um, there's there's another part that comes from uh, taxes. Like I think each state has its own taxes. Um, federal has its own taxes on gasoline. I think California, which we reside, is the highest. Yeah, thanks. Not, yeah, thanks. Not a not a big surprise. I think it's eighty seven cents. Uh, a gallon and then um is it that much yeah yeah i think there's talks about you know repealing or temporarily pausing some of it but in any case didn't we just increase it um on july 1st oh you're right yeah Yeah. you're right there there was like a set increase i don't know if it if it uh you know went into action i think it did yeah the the other part is the the refining cost right so so crude oil doesn't do much 
in order to put it into your car, you need to refine it and different types of oil require different types of refining. And there's all kinds of different products that, that are made from, from oil, not just gasoline and that require refining. And then the last is what he's talking about, which is the distribution. Um, that is the pipelines that, that transport it um, and the, all the trucks that bring it to the gas station. And most of the gas stations are actually owned by refiners, but they're also owned by mom and pop, you know, independent gas stations uh, that, that retail um, gasoline. And I think it's important to know that a lot of these guys don't make fat margins. They, you know, as, as a percentage of the cost of oil, it's, I think it's less than 10%. So we're clearly well, not. No, like the average, I, I was looking up margins. Yeah. What's the margin gas of gas? They vary from like two cents to like seven, three, cents. three it's, cents it's, to seven cents. It's nothing. But it, they make money like on the, on it's the like McDonald's. They don't and, make any money on the burgers. Yeah. They make all the money selling you soda and l- cigarettes and lottery Yeah, So tickets. then it's absolutely yeah. insane to tell that person to drop the price to reflect the cost. Well, there's there's a couple of things here, right? It's like, okay, so let's take the tweet at face value. All right. yeah. At face value, the tweet is obviously economically illiterate. Like the idea that a bunch of gas stations are just They're sitting cahoots, there Steven. price gouging people, making these huge fat margins on gas is... It's like is, the is, hot dog bun industry right. conspiracy. So that, it's so obviously... The eight versus six, yeah, it's the same. It's verifiably <laughs> stupid. It's verifiably wrong, right? So then we could be like more charitable and we can kind of rewind to the Trump era where people were like, yeah, I know he said those words, but okay. it, it's more the Let's spirit the of what yeah. he was saying, right? Okay. The spirit of what he was saying. Like that they, there are like people are being price cut. I mean, what do you think? Like, so gas stations obviously are not making money hand over fist, but like our, our refineries are the oil companies. Is there somebody in the chain that is making a fat margin right now? If they are, that's that's good because they are they are running at like I think a ninety five percent capacity right now. And one Ref- of our refineries are yeah refineries our, our, our refineries are maxed out right now, which right. is one of the main reasons gas is so high. And I saw that we are we are down a million barrels a day in capacity from COVID. Like we just right. lost that capacity and it never came back online. And, and we just blocked another big refinery from like expanding capacity. I think it was in the Virgin Islands, the EPA just like in the last couple of weeks, this isn't, you know, long time ago. So yeah, I mean, I think we, we want refineries to make money. We want more investment in refineries. That's what we need. I think that's our biggest yeah. bottleneck. And when, when was the last refinery we built? 1977. Very good. We have not built a refinery <laughs> since 1977. I think people need to understand this. Like oil doesn't just come out of the ground and we, you don't just pump it in your car. You don't just put it in products. Like it, it has to be refined. Right. And we we do, we don't have that infrastructure here. And, and one of the, the saddest parts about this is the, the reflection of that we are the biggest oil producer in the world, yet we are the second largest importer of oil. And you might be like, "Well, why is that?" If we if we make uh, all you know the world's greatest amount of oil, why do we even need to import it? And it's because of the the refineries. You know, the type of oil that that we produce, uh, we're not able to refine ourselves, and so we import it from Saudi Arabia, and I think they even refine it for us and then ship it over. So. This re- refining part of the value chain is the biggest bottleneck. I think it's what what 
I would attribute the the rising cost for. There was a chart. I don't remember the chart, but it basically shows the disparity between the the price of gasoline and, and the and the price of oil, and the the disparity, the spread, if you will, is increasing. And so, what we would like to have happen is for companies to see a an opportunity to invest in those refineries, and they cost billions of dollars. They take years to develop, and if you're a CFO of a refinery and you're just looking at like the government telling you, we don't want you to exist. In fact, we want you to go extinct. Who, like, how are you going to allocate $3 billion, $5 billion to expand your refining capacity when you don't even think you'll, you'll exist? And refining capacity decreased because of COVID, right? Demand, demand went down. I think in Pennsylvania, we had like a huge explosion and they just, they had to fold up shop because the price of oil was, was too low. And so we have a government that's not necessarily not necessarily setting the backdrop to encourage investment, uh, which is going to continue this supply side problem, and uh, you know specifically the the refining problem and, and the whole value chain. So I got I have a question here. Uh, just let me go qu- quickly. Yeah. yeah. Uh, okay. So my question here is like, uh, obviously we want to get off of fossil fuels ultimately, right? So this is a short term problem on like a a long-term spectrum, right? Like for our lifetime, it might be a problem for seven years or something, but like, do we want to pour infrastructure investment into something that will be obsolete eventually? Like, yes. Yeah. Okay. That's my question. It's like, because, you know, we can get energy from other sources. Right. Outside of burning fossil fuels. Great, great question. I mean, I, I think a few things pop to mind. Like you have to ask yourselves the question, like, why don't we have the negotiating power to, um, you know, to build these re- renewable energy sources. And I think it's because we've kind of deferred and let, you know, countries like Russia kind of, you know, concentrate power over the sources. But if we were the ones to control it, we would have more negotiating power over, over you know, which countries get oil, which ones, you know, continue to, to prosper and could have more leverage when it comes to building renewable energy sources. Um, but also, you know, oil and gas don't necessarily like produce electricity. And it seems like a lot of the renewable energy projects are about electricity, like wind, solar. So just because you could do both things at the same time is basically what I'm saying. We, we should yeah. try to take control over the global supply chain by refining more, by, by producing more oil at the same time, developing these technologies. But I don't think you necessarily solve the, uh, a lot of the problems for electricity by like uh, decreasing the amount of oil and natural gas that we that's uh, fair. that we make yeah it's a good point and it's it, it's worth like uh, like building on what you said obviously the vast majority of people in the country don't have electric cars so when they drive places they need gas and all of the products you buy are shipped in trucks that are largely not electric they come over in boats that don't burn electricity right there's a lot of elements of the system that don't use renewables and 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 let's let's talk about plastics like plastics large component of plastics is oil a lot of this is not going away anytime soon and to your point like we can walk and chew gum at the same time we can be like we need to get on renewables we need to subsidize this we need to use intelligent policy to facilitate this transition but that doesn't mean it's like a zero-sum thing where we have to turn off gas but th- this is what you hear like you hear some people in the administration that they, they're coming out and just saying it out loud they're like well you know i know this is sort of painful for some of you 
pores out there. But in the long run, these high prices are a great opportunity to transition to a better world. And you're just kind of collateral damage along the way. I'm glad you brought up cars because when I was researching ExxonMobil stock, uh, I I saw a stat that said that about 50% of gas today or like oil today is used for uh, fueling your car. 50%. I mean, at some point, we're going to be driving less or we're going to use electric vehicles. Like, is this like, is, is seven years a long term for you? Is, is like 10 years a long, a long term for you where you're going to like pour money into infrastructure? You, you said it yourself, billions of dollars uh, to expand refineries and stuff. Like it's not, it's not small money. We made, we made these mistakes years ago, right? Because as yeah. you said, it's, it's not like you're like, oh, we need more oil. Let's, it's, it's not like building an iPhone where you just deploy some capital and then a year you have a new refinery. Right. It's like a seven, it's a 10-year process. Right. So, right? We get, so we get no relief now when we need it. And then in 10 years, the relief comes and we've already moved off to a new technology. I mean, hopefully we've moved off, but it's better to have the optionality there, right? And we're still going to need oil for the foreseeable future, right? Unless, I don't know, is there a way to make plastics from widely? <laughs> I, know, I know I know, some gigabrain out there is probably making plastic from algae that they yeah, harvest from the ocean. I'm sure it's out there, right? But like, is that, do we want to bank on that happening? Like, why, why would we? why would we do that? Like, we have the... And if we're running a country, do, do you want to let the part of your population that gas prices, you know, impact the most to carry that burden? You know, at least Biden's saying like, hey, this is the cost of switching to renewable energy. You know, I don't think Greta Thun- Thunberg, you know, told us that it was going to cost $100 oil to, to get here. That, that wasn't part of the promise, Right. And so I, th- I think it's just a... Uh, Greta didn't know that as an 11-year-old? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you know, <laughs> may- maybe she thought it would be painful, but, you know, do, do you want the, you know, the kind of lowest tier of the, you know, economic, you know, class to, to have to bear that? I, I don't know if I, I do. And yeah, I don't know. Uh, this is a huge problem with energy policy is that it's largely pushed by the quote unquote elites. I hate using that word. It sounds like kind of conspiratorial, but like it, it's true. Like there are the upper echelon of society, the richest among us, the influential among us who control media, who teach things. And they push this vision of the world, right? In which like we're going to go to this more utopian balanced earth state. But in the meantime, the people who get hurt the most along the way are the people who are the least well off. Right. And it's not even the people in the US. There's like people like like India and stuff who just will literally die. Like they'll be so cut off from energy and like energy is the base. Like, I mean, there are people in Europe energy. this winter who, who might yeah, suffer. Like Europe face. is like we're gonna see probably see some crazy stuff this this winter like people it's all fun and games to say that like oh you want to save the planet and everything while you're you can still heat your house you can still drive your car but like once stuff starts hitting the fan and people don't have those basic needs like things happen and a lot of people who were not previously expressing those opinions suddenly start rising up and going out into the streets and doing stuff and then and then things go things can get out of control really fast um but but I do want to be like slightly more generous to to Biden. Right? Okay. Let, let's ignore that tweet, which is obviously stupid, right? There there have been actual policies pushed which are which are less stupid, although you you may still find them stupid, right? Like is the the actual policy that could work is this idea of the uh, the the windfall tax, right? 
You heard of the windfall taxes? In, in what context? I don't understand. So, so what they've done is they've proposed, I think it was like Ro Khanna and maybe Sheldon Whitehouse from my humble state of Rhode Island. We don't produce the best politicians. But um, <laughs> the, the idea is that you say, hey, oil companies, you made all this money due to exogenous events, not due to your investment savvy. And because you're making this additional profit, we're going to take half of it and then pay it out to people who are hurting at the pump, right? Which might sound reasonable, but I, I, I'm curious um, what what you think is wrong with that. You mean it sounds good? You mean through a direct payment, like direct transfer payment? Well, it goes to the government first, and then you know it Filters somehow out. gets back to people. But it, it sounds like a great policy. These these greedy corporations—they're making too much money. They're making fat profit margins now. They didn't do any like real like savvy stuff for this to happen. Russia just invaded the Ukraine. Now they're making all this money. Gas is expensive. People are hurting. Why shouldn't we just recapture some of this money and distribute it? I mean, I kind of had a similar thought. It's like, you know, there's these greedy refineries who are making money because of exogenous events. Well, guess who takes a 20% rip off that? The taxpayers. And like, we get to collect that money and use it as our elected officials see fit. And so, you know, I want to do both. I want America to establish itself as like, someone in control of the the oil and gas supply chain and then make trade agreements with our partners who kind of align with you know similar world values and at the same time I want to develop these these new technologies so you know I don't know if I would put it you know direct transfer payments although I haven't thought about that I would just say it's a reasonable to you know invest that money into these renewable technologies invest the money that's already being taxed or you want to levy these additional taxes oh additional taxes the windfall tax is like hey You've received these bulk profits because of these exogenous events. So we're going to tax these how, how, excess profits at 50%. How do you measure that? Like That's a great question. <laughs> yeah. That's a great question. I, I don't know how you would... Uh... I think the bill arbitrarily sort of pin... I don't want to say arbitrarily, but it pins it to some profit baseline that was established in like, I don't know, 19... Uh, excuse me, 2018 to 2019. And basically says anything beyond this is quote unquote excess. Ergo, we will tax you fifty percent on it. Hmm. Yeah. I mean, I, I don't know about additional taxes. I don't know what the like second and third order consequences of it are. Um, but I, I necessarily wouldn't be opposed to it if it if it falls in line with like um, we want to invest in oil and gas. We want to invest in refineries. And if, yeah, you do make money from these exogenous events, that that's okay. You have to create an environment where investment is good. And like one of the policies I read about that I thought was, was a good idea is like our strategic petroleum reserve is being depleted for mostly political means, like to, to get you 10 cents off your, you know, uh, $6 uh, gasoline. Um, and we could set a price floor for uh you know gasoline like the i know you don't like that but uh you know the us government will replenish our the spr at $80 uh, a barrel like standing floor and what that does is it kind of provides a floor to reinvestment knowing that if i'm a cfo of a refinery or oil drilling company i know i'm going to be able to sell it at $80 in the future yeah. if oil plummets i'm still going to be able to be profitable it encourages reinvestment it also replenishes the spr and i think is that tax may be viable as long as we give this like broader uh environment of of incentivizing investment 
Maybe. Okay. Yeah. Do, like do, do, do you have a strong opinion on this tax, Mr. Uh, uh, I'm largely anti uh, ideologically. I think it's completely inefficient by taking money from someone and then putting it to the government than to give it to, to the hands of the individuals. But you, there might not be a better way. The, I mean, the best way is just to like encourage investment and give us cheap gasoline. Yes. Yeah. Like let that, let that stay in our pockets rather yes. than going through the government and you know. Yeah. I, look, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to be charitable, right? But yeah. my, my base understanding of economics is that when you tax something, you, you get less of it. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, and, and we have some data we can point to, right? So like, uh, there's this like idea that oil companies are making just these absurd profit margins, but they, uh, like, of the 11 sectors of the S and P 500, like energy is number 10 over the last like five, six, seven years in terms of profits. Right. So you have this industry where there are profits in the long run, but they may occur in these like spikes where you make these risky investments and you lose money, you lose money, you lose money. And then one year you get the spike. But then the government comes in and they're like, mm, I was, you made 20% this year. That's pretty greedy. Sounds like yeah, a it's pretty high greedy. tax on an entrepreneur. <laughs> are, <laughs> are we going to average in the, the losses that they right. incurred during right. 2020? No, this is the problem like the wealth tax too. Is like we look at these things in these very narrow realms like, oh, you made X in this like arbitrarily short period. Right. That seems unfair. 12 calendar to, months really means nothing. Yeah, due to this metric, we've kind of pulled out of our butts. And so we're going to take that money. And then the end result is like, why would you invest in that as an energy company? Right? Why, yeah. why would you take those risks to increase supply? Like all of the administrations with like a D in front of their name have been very like openly hostile to you. You're like flipping a coin as whether the next four to eight years are going to allow you to make money or not. Like, of course you would kind of rein back production, but that, that ends up, that ends up hurting people. Right. So, and, and we've talked about like a moral case for being pro fossil fuel investment in the U S because who does this policy hurt the most? It's, it's the, the people get hurt the most when gas is five and $6 a gallon. Um, you know, not the elites, not the upper echelon of like earners for sure. So I, I, I you know, it's just uh, it's, it's disappointing. I think there are several things that they, they could do, but you know, to kind of carry on to your point, like not just a tax, but we're talking about price controls. It's like being circled around that we're gonna put a cap on the price, which is essentially capping it's gonna supply. Disincentivize <laughs> yeah. a new investment. And, and luckily, it sounds like this this argument is like hopefully you know being shot down. But but it's not like I. I actually, when I, when I heard this, right, I, I reviewed all this and I thought to myself, this sounds so stupid. Like surely nobody is reading this, listening to this and saying, this is a good idea. But like when I went on to Twitter and I, you know, I went on to, I don't know, blue Twitter. Right. And everybody's like, yes, corporate greed oil was this price in 2014. Why is gas higher now? And we should, everybody was like very rah, rah, rah price controls. And it, it just like struck me like how humans just make the same mistakes over and over again, as long as they have enough time that lapses where they've sort of never like personally experienced it. And that that's kind of like what's going to happen. Like, I, I feel like we might do the price controls again and price mm -hmm. controls 
Always when do we do we do this already? When, I don't remember. The we time. did the same thing in like the seventies under 70s? Jimmy Carter. And um, you can you can expand it to like uh, putting caps on like rent control and stuff. You see it, you see the outcomes. It 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 just doesn't work in the way that right. Okay, so that's a good example because you came from San Francisco and there's rent control and there's a supply issue. Yes, in San Francisco. Yeah, it, it prices out the middle class because you right. have the people that hmm. are on this low rent that stay there forever and their rent is like way under market. So then other guys have to go way above market. You know, just to like make it make sense. So then it prices out the entire middle class. Yeah. Yeah. I, I'm I'm not that opposed to government intervention on the supply side, like incentivizing the supply side of stuff. I think it can go awry very easily. But like what we tend to do is these kind of really brutal, like um we, we just take an axe to to stuff with like price controls and whatnot, and it's just it just in the long run destroys it destroys um you know, the cost of goods for people for like these kind of short-term political gains. And then everybody's like, oh, how did this happen? And we kind of repeat the cycle over again. What about in our hope for improvement of the situation? Do we see that Europe is kind of front running where we hope the U.S. kind of eventually goes? I think in the last couple of days, we saw them label natural gas as a green energy source in in addition to to nuclear. And uh, I do think there's a case for saying that like, yes, natural gas is cleaner than coal. Um, But in any case, I think that the the geography that's being threatened the most is starting to have to make some changes. They're going to fire up some some plants, and they're labeling as uh, natural gas as, as green energy. So, do we think, you know, they're going to? I think Europe is doing this because they have no other choice, right? I think in the U.S. we have this like luxury of having all of this oil, and we have this like cushion where we're like. Ah, we can kind of like do these suboptimal things. We've got these resources, but like Europe is a good example of what I was talking about earlier. When people's backs are actually against the wall, they're suddenly like, "Mm, yeah, all this green stuff. Let's maybe look into what's actually green and what's not. Let's, let's maybe, let's maybe make some hard choices. Let's, let's actually like do some, like Europe doesn't have a choice. They don't produce they don't produce enough energy like we do. And we're using that to kind of it's, coast by. It's funny how quickly we go back to basics when, when you're, when you're pushed up against the wall and how energy is maybe the, one of the top three or four things that you need to, to have a country survive and, 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 and grow. And I think we forget how much conflict there was in the world regarding energy. Like I think, you know, there, there are several conflicts and wars that are started over energy. And I think maybe our generation got, got used to the fact that we didn't have as much of that because, you know, the United States Navy kind of patrolled all the transportation, you know, ways and let freedom of navigation happen around mm-hmm. the world. And, and energy was easily transportable. And we just kind of grew up in this world where there wasn't as much conflict over, over you know, how energy moved and where it was produced. And did everyone get enough and the U.S., you know, post-World War II provided this framework was like, we'll even make sure uh, that our enemies or the people that we are in conflict with, you know, have freedom of navigation to get the energy they need. And maybe all that is just taken for, for granted right now. Hmm. Yeah, we have that tendency as like a civilization. We, we, take for, we start taking for granted some of the base stuff. And then we kind of branch out on these like weird quests and then like when the shit hits the fan we go like oh no what have we done in reality we need to establish like what the baseline kind of hierarchy of needs is make sure we never lose that 
just like make sure that's in place no matter what. And then we can kind of go out there and go to solar or everything, but we're not doing that. We're, we're degrading that at the same time. We try to go to the renewable stuff. It's causing a lot of problems. But like we've talked a lot about oil, right? And we've talked about energy and like those two things aren't the same. Like we don't use right. oil for energy. So you mean uh, like for like electricity? For like heating, for, yeah, yeah. For yeah. heating electricity. Right. So like, for, for heating, yeah. Electricity. So, well, no, heating. Like we definitely use oil. Well, I gas. 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 Nah, Natural I mean, gas. I, I used oil and back, back in Rhode Island <laughs> in the woods, we had a big old tank of oil. We used to heat our house with it. We used yeah, lumber. Like, <laughs> yeah. We used lumber too. Yeah. Like, <laughs> no, we literally burned oil and lumber. Like a lot of people do use oil for heat. It, 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 is, it, it is a thing. Like energy is a base need. We need to make sure we have it no matter what. In the United States, we have the luxury of being able to actually guarantee that for all of our citizens. So it's just like, it's political and economic malpractice that we don't do that. And we all agree to do that as like the base layer. And then I'll kind of unify and go like, okay, let's secure this base layer, but also let's figure out how to wean ourselves off of this. But let's not do that until we secure this. And let's not destroy this base layer that we all need while while we do but, it. But do it from a lot of and be able to do that from a, a strong bargaining position. You know, as you know, I think of like a a producer of oil that's able to supply it for its own citizens, for its trade partners, yeah. and be able to kind of be more in control of the situation. I agree. Yeah. Right. Does anybody have any more strong takes on this? Otherwise, I think we should. Uh, My strong yeah. take is that uh, this yeah, camera, this camera needs to get replaced. Yeah, if I, anybody out there, I have knows, some bad uh, news for you guys. We're gonna have to up the uh, monthly budget. Do <laughs> um, the cameras we just purchased not we work? We need an intern <laughs> and probably even better cameras and someone to actually manage the video because I basically became a. Did this camera video go out? Boy. This camera has been working. Yeah, I think that one stayed on. Cool. Let's just go back to iPhones. It guys. is such a random. Armand bought all our cameras on Alibaba. <laughs> they say they say Sony on them, but it's Sony spelled so with C. <laughs> I worked with the budget you gave me. All right, this this isn't a Sony camera. It's a So New York. <laughs> <laughs> you just uh, bought it because it has the little Alpha symbol in the corner. Yeah, huh? I did. I did. Uh, it has the Alpha, mm-hmm. alpha on it. I like that. Yeah, yeah. poor decision. But anyway. since I can't multitask, I basically all right. Just so out. I can't wait to listen to that whole segment. <laughs> I know. I, I, I feel bummed because you had a lot of data. And, uh, and, that's all good. Yeah. Well, Armand, thank you for your service. Yeah. I, I look forward to the actual. What do you, what do we do in the actual video feed? Do we just like do like the technical difficulties just, cartoon thing? Just throw my MF or like the bar. Just throw the emoji. Just throw the weed emoji. Yeah. Yeah. Oh well. All right, so let's bring it segment, home. Uh, We're gonna go a little three. lighthearted, a little travel stuff. Yeah, yeah it's right. not porn or anything. No, Cle- no. cleanse my palate. It's not about, about like you know dirty. having multiple <laughs> sexual partners. Not this week. Not this week. Okay, we're all trying right. to bring on Eight Sleet as a partner. Should we right? do you polyamory gotta, soon? Polyamory. I would polyamory. love to hear your take on polyamory. I want to do polyamory soon. Yeah, that would be good. <laughs> <laughs> Whoa, Mister Anti. All right. <laughs> Bump okay. that to the top of the back. Yeah. <laughs> All right. What do we, uh, what do we go over? You're the, you're the travel wonder less wonder. Everyone here, else. everyone here travels. You a lot. especially though. I, I feel like we've had a lot of pods without you because you've been the traveler. Well, those are little mini trips. Those are mini all trips. trips. The Greece yeah. and Egypt. Because the Egypt, he's like, yeah, it's just a little. I forgot about trip, that one. You know, it's just um, a little, little weekend venture to but Egypt. But no, let's, let's set the stage. I mean, like, I think everyone here, like, let's, let's, let's be real. Like, Eric lived abroad. Um, 
you know, he, he traveled the world for a couple of years and has continued to ever since. You took a trip to fucking Bordeaux last year on a whim. and I need all those recommendations, by the way. Yeah, yeah. I mean, like, you you do that. You, you've been to New Zealand a couple times. I've done nothing cool um, ever. I don't know what you're talking about. Uh, we've traveled a mm-hmm. fuck ton together. Yep. Uh, we can talk about this one story. We're going to talk about the one, tra- the one, talk story, about the one and, story and the one travel hack that we, we've yet to share publicly. Well, I, I actually don't know if I know what your one story that you're referring to is because one time we climbed the tallest freestanding mountain in Africa and another time we did a, you know, we went and got sushi in Tokyo and flew back, you know, yep. back in one day and like there's there's a lot of those. Um, I miss those other? days. Yeah. 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 <laughs> and where I have to be in front of a microphone. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> and, and for me, I think it's just like a deep rooted wonderlust. So we can explore all of that. Um, how do you guys want to open this? Well, I mean, I think the, the life segment is all about like how to, you know, improve your life when you look back on it, like what is the thing that's going to give you the most value and, and what do you remember most, uh, you know, what are your most life you know, changing experiences. And it seems like for a lot yeah. of us, like travel just ends yeah. up in the top of that. So and I, I want to hear Armand <clears throat> wax poetic about his just favorite moments abroad. Just, just <laughs> well, want to hear him loop, lean loop back up with a, a glass of wine. Me up a little. Just, uh, <laughs> yeah. I remember Tuscany. <laughs> Tuscany's a great place. Tuscany's was a great place. Six. Well, when I am an old man, though, that that'll probably be exactly what I sound like and act like. Um, oh, did the other one just bite the dust? Yeah, we have no video currently. Oh, but the the this, this one's on. Interesting. Mm. So that guy's staying on. The other one went out. Uh, so there's there's a few things here. I thought that was a very great great frame. Um, this segment is about the moments in life, the things in your life that provide the most alfalfa. And I think that for all of us, I would say probably travels very much at the top. I mentioned this once before, but uh, I the the area of life that I've spent the most money on by far, by far, is travel. So maybe like one anecdotal thing that's very interesting is like actually it's kind of a more of a black market thing. So I probably shouldn't mention oh, this. Oh, <laughs> nice! I have Real found alpha. many ways. Like for example, this was maybe like seven or eight years ago, where I found a way to uh, fly for free. Yeah. I'm trying to remember where the areas where I'm supposed to talk or just give them the alpha. You 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 want to go into it. Yeah. So there, there are ways to essentially fly on standby for free. And I'll give you enough that you can kind of figure that out where people that uh, work for airlines uh, themselves, their spouse, their children, and one friend are allowed to fly for free on standby. You just pay the taxes. I remember my, uh, uh, oh God. Yeah. I can't say that. I remember, (laughs) um, like someone that I worked with, uh, proposed this idea to me one time and was like, you know, this is, this is like an interesting opportunity. Do you want to take advantage of this? And that basically opened the door to getting, every friend that I had involved and getting them all these like flight passes. Yeah. This was, this was pre, this was pre, <laughs> like, where was I? Pre Steven, right here. Pre Steven. But to be honest, the opportunity still exists. And that it's, probably it's added on I'm another, very poor right now, another 20, 25 stamps to my passport by itself of Damn. being able to fly business class 
most of the time abroad internationally for like a hundred, two hundred dollars for a flight that is basically like four to six thousand dollars. Yeah, I mean, here's what you want is a is a relationship with a ideally a pilot who's been with the airline for like twenty years. <laughs> and listen, I think it's okay to talk about because it's it's open enough it and there's so many pilots and, and particularly um employees of airlines that don't necessarily live in the US where mm. you know maybe collecting a little money on the side uh for putting you as their as their friend as their buddy pass would make allocation would make a big difference to them in terms of their annual income and it's on an annual basis so you typically towards the end of the year there's a lot of people looking for buddies to add on to their to their list uh for a little extra money and it provides you a way to like like Armand said, travel essentially for free. You have to do it standby. But I think it introduces this interesting element, which we we experienced when we had a few years where we had this pass together, where you, you you can't necessarily plan a trip in advance. You have to be a little spontaneous. And so some of the times we would just say, okay, are we going to hot? Just cold? the dates. Yeah, yeah. here's the dates. Are we go, are we <laughs> like, packing for cold weather or warm weather? Hemisphere. And then we, and then we would yeah. go to like the, I don't know, let's say the, for example, the United hub that would have an international hub and then just sit at the airport and, and we would both look at the flights and sit standby. And when we both got, were able to get on a flight business class, cause this is what makes it all, all worth it. I think get your ROI on it might as well. Um, then we would go there. Wait, so, so you would both just go to a hub. Yeah. Yes. And then you would sit around waiting until there was a standby flight that you both could get on. Yeah. Right. So we could, could go- you could see if you both got on it. And yeah. You yeah. both got like There's business. a back end that you can look at. And then you'd, you'd be like, we're this going to Reykjavik. Yeah. yeah. Like, I mean, I, I mean, exactly. we were we were probably less than uh, 60 seconds away from boarding a flight to Buenos Aires. And then at the last oh, yeah. second, like the people who were supposed to have those flights came running up to the gate. And, you know, took the seats. And then we ended up in Puerto Rico like that later that evening. And uh, we had a trip. Yeah, great trip. I I mean, this sounds very fun. Can I I back you up a step? Yeah. Is is there like a marketplace to get these things? Is there like some black market? There's not. But as soon as you you get in touch with someone who's done it before, they can put you in touch with someone else. Word of mouth. Um, it's, it's a lot of, but they're looking for, you know, I feel like five to 10% of people listening would even be interested. So we can speak to that, but then I think speak to a more important part. Um, they're looking for entrepreneurs like that. They're looking for people that have a bit of disposable income who they know have a flexible work schedule that are, have a desire to travel. Because if you don't have a a serious desire to travel along Mm. with some serious flexibility, this makes absolutely no sense for you (laughs) at all. Name one NFT that is at like a four ETH floor that has more utility than flight pass. Oh my God. Can we turn this into an NFT? (laughs) Probably not. So there is a travel (laughs) NFT. There are a few travel NFTs (laughs) where they come with like- Shooting down my dreams. Yeah. No, they come with like the whole travel experience and the flight and everything. And they don't even cost as much. But if you really think about it, this costs about as much as one- international business class flight so yes. for a lot of people that's okay so, so for people who are uber flexible yes. who have found their way into the sort of uh craigslist resale market for companion passes mm-hmm. or whatever it is you can effectively strike a deal with somebody get their thing and then if you have a flexible travel you can just go to a hub pack for the Let's type go. of weather 
and then just see where the standbys take you. Yes. And so we actually um, used our flight pass onto a fixed date trip one time. So you can kind of like uh, structure it out. We were going to go hike Mount Kilimanjaro, which we can talk about. And we needed to obviously be there on a very specific time in, in Africa. Oh, but, yeah. I, but I think the we took a flight from Denver and we needed to get to Europe somehow so then we could... F- Take oh, you, you even did that with the yes. yeah, like you don't need it for the whole thing. Like you, that's mm. how flexible you have to be, though. We, I think we flew to Dubai. Yeah, we flew to Dubai. And like, <laughs> we okay, like, we can just buy a Dubai. ticket when we get to Dubai to get to get to Nairobi we buy that same day. Yeah, make sure you land there, and then I think we took Emirates to Kenya. And that was it. I would have stayed single forever. I would have stayed single forever. (laughs) Almost did, son. Like you guys, you guys have flexibility in your jobs. Like I wouldn't work. I wouldn't ever come to these Wednesdays. Like I would never record this podcast. I I feel like I have like follow-up questions now. So, so to listeners, so keep going. Yeah. So you've got this kind of past thing. Is there a limit to how much you can use it per year? So as much as you want, you can just And domestic flights are free. No tax. But I will say that it's it's less useful for domestic flights because they're often booked. There's not as not many always, like, but you're definitely not getting business. There's, there's on just domestic. like a lot of open seats. Oh yeah, you can get economy place. plus, you know, hands plenty down on a on a domestic flight for sure. Yeah, mm. yeah, man, that sounds fun. It is fun. All right. I so mean, I took it to to Denver, you know, on that fly fishing trip. Like I just used it. Damn. And like, let's say you want to go somewhere in Europe. All you really need to do is just like get to London first. Right. Get get to London. There's or Frankfurt. Mm. There's a ton of flights. You're gonna get business class on one of those flights. Are, are you using it to get to London as well? You, only using it That's to get to London. Means. And then oh. typically once I'm and at London, I'm like, there, all right, you... I want to get there like today, so I'll just buy the Ryanair, the or the your uh, Easy Death. Easy Jet, right? Yeah, yeah. Ryanair is basically, <laughs> was the pun intended? Yeah, free. yeah, yeah. Okay, Easy Jet's right. not yeah. not fun, but yeah, you take a little couple hundred dollar flight to then wherever you're, whatever city you're going. Oh, yeah. Fascinating. Side note: Ryanair's Twitter account during the Twitter market was really funny. Actually, they trolled everybody at the top. I heard that, and they were like, "You're all going to be poor soon, so you're going to need to fly us." Hey, don't <laughs> at me. Beautiful. <laughs> <laughs> well played. I think the more interesting thing is why to travel in the first place. Yeah. Like, why does a person even ever need to leave their environment, whether it be their city or their country, to experience something new? Different people do it for different reasons. Um, I think that there's an important thing to distinguish that is the traveler versus the vacationer, the tourist. Uh, I would say if we were really just starting with like the big picture there, there's an important differentiation there. I never used to see the value for taking a vacation or needing to escape from the uh, daily life that you had because I viewed my life as this interconnected, blended thing of like, you can't tell when I'm working or playing. And I, I there's actually a an amazing quote that I don't have in front of me by James Missioner, uh, the uh, it, it's basically about the the art of living, the master of living, where you cannot tell, uh, to paraphrase it, is like the the master of living is someone in which you can't tell whether they are working or playing. To them, it is all just this like flow of life. So that person is very much a traveler. But every once in a while, you need a break from your life. You need a break from the grind. You need to disconnect. You need to unplug. And there's absolutely nothing wrong with vacationing. I used to be very anti the vacationer. And I've actually learned there's an incredible value there as well. So I think there's just different purposes for that. Um, what are you, like a full-time well, vacationer? You, I'm, I just 
can't wrap my head around you being anti-vacation. Like that seems well, there's like a difference between trauma and vacation. Like Eric, so Eric's lived this. I feel like, dude, maybe I, got, I got so deep into this ideology when I lived abroad for, for two years and I would like go to a place, I would like work there. I, I would like get into the culture of that environment. Like to, to exactly what you're saying. It's like, I would look at the people who were just visiting as like a one week vacation. I'd be like, you, you don't you get miss it. the point. Like you missed the point of this whole thing. Correct. And like when I would go do that, I said to myself, I said, I will never vacation again. <laughs> <laughs> that's so that's changed and, and i think like where i've changed in that is that like i've i've learned that um there's a lot of beauty to nesting as well and like yes. we've built our lives here in san diego and that's like very cool and we have each other and we have our our significant others or we you know we have our lives here and that's also fun to build so like you can't just fuck off for two years and also nest can i, can I ask you a question so you no, know, absolutely you, not. You you left uh, a pretty good life in San Diego. You know, you have uh, significant career credentials, you know, CFA, managing gorillions of dollars. <laughs> and, but at some point, you when you were traveling, you took a job at a bar or even an ice cream shop. Wait, hostel? You yeah, I worked at a, a hostel. job at an ice cream shop. I mean, these, <laughs> these are multiple amazing ice cream stories. No, I'm glad we're, we're. I want to hear all your multiple <laughs> continents, multiple continents, now. multiple ice cream shops, uh, <laughs> hostel, bar, uh, tour guide. You know, like the the list of jobs, strange jobs, goes on and on and on. And the idea was like, I'm I'm not actually caring what I'm doing so much as that I'm like living in this other life. And it was like, it's like playing a choose your own adventure story where like, I turned I a page. I couldn't understand more. It's like a fantasy. I mine. turned to page 79 to and I'm like doing Cuba. this other whole thing. And it's like, <laughs> I, I literally start a new life where I'm like. I'm not joking at all. I'm like nobody, liaising nobody with the mayor of Regina, Saskatchewan because we're we're throwing the uh, the jazz festival together. And it's like, oh fuck, I could, have, I could like literally be this guy now. And then like, nope, page 89, let's go over here now. And that was like that my, is so beautiful. That was like my whole I thing. Love it. So it, there was in Australia, you worked at a bar in a hostel, mm-hmm. right? And then in Canada, you worked at an ice cream shop. But like, did and you I ever put on the jazz festival and jazz festival? You put on the jazz festival. Well, as the associate producer. <laughs> <laughs> did you end up managing the books for the ice cream shop by any chance? No, but the the bar story is funny because like Nick just wants to know about the numbers. <laughs> How profitable was it? Was an ice cream shop in the middle of fucking Canada Bro, when it's freezing? Is what I want to know. Three hundred dollars revenue was, per I day. I was just like, wait, you like jazz? <laughs> I liked I liked being the associate producer of the jazz festival. Uh, but yeah, so I, I think what I what I learned is like uh, when you go to to these new stories. Like I was twenty three years old when I went to Australia. And Australia, like this is probably a good a travel hack for a younger person. Like a lot of other countries, like European, Australia, like all these like British colonies, they have this thing called a gap year. They either do it yeah. right after high school or they do it right after college. All these people the same age run the same track. So you either start like in the south of Australia, work your way up, up, up north on the east coast of it, or you can do it in like Western Europe. And when I did that, what I learned is like, man, I'm two years older than these guys. And like they like these jobs respected me so much. I was, I was like the only one with like a university degree. So like I started in this bar mopping up vomit and cleaning glasses. And by like day three, they're like, you want to manage this place? <laughs> so how did you reconcile that? You're like, okay, I obviously have these skills, these capabilities. How do you reconcile that with your ambition? Oh, I, I had a, a guy that I traveled with. Uh, shout out to John. Uh, John taught me when you're traveling, he's like, his his whole motto was like, "How do we make this more fun?" 
And that was like the only you rule You still to live say by. that. Yeah. How do we make this more fun? Right. And uh, it's it's more fun just to like go down these little meandering uh, little side rivers, you know, like see where life goes. Oh, that's so good. That's a serious fantasy of mine. Like <laughs> so, some some would consider that like the ultimate sin, like not not utilizing talent or skill to like the utmost. But it made it more My fun. My mom. No. <laughs> choose, <laughs> choose your own adventure. Right. He's, I mean, especially in your 20s. Jesus. Yeah. My God. But it's it's obviously changed now. Like now I'm nesting. So Americans in general are known for taking life overly seriously. Yeah. And when you travel abroad and you backpack, you find out that like the gap year is part of the culture of so many countries. And it's not just the gap year, but the idea of like the goal in life is not to do more as fast as possible because Americans are in a race. We call it the rat race. And in Europe, there's very much not a race. It's like this beautiful, nostalgic sort of eat, pray, love sort of vibe where you're just sitting and you're doing nothing for the sake of doing nothing. And that is life. And so you go abroad and you get exposure to this. And as an American, when you get exposure to that for the first time, it shocks you and it changes your worldview. And your entire reality is based on your worldview. So the number one reason that I started traveling besides the inner innate desire of wonderlust was because I wanted to expand my worldview. And I felt that if I could accumulate more perspectives of like the 47 year old man at the bar in New Zealand, the 22 year old guy, you know, making my ice cream and the 75 year old lady on the hike in fucking Switzerland, I could begin to expand my perception of like what it means to live a good and full life because the narrow view that I have cannot be the only view. It's kind of like religion, honestly, or spirituality. It's like you've been sold that there's one way to, uh, to, to fully realize yourself and to connect with God or the universe or whatever you believe in. You've been given a dogma. And America comes with a dogma. And when you go out there and you realize like, oh, wait, we just kind of made this up to the best that we could – and it's just a cultural phenomenon. And you go to another country and this person is living a completely different <laughs> fucking reality in Cambodia. He's riding his bike to work. He only needs the equivalent of $25,000 a year. He's happier than you are. And you are a mental case because you think that you need more. And you begin to learn that like nothing more than your basic needs, wants, and desires of $50,000 a year is actually going to make you happy. And that's scientifically proven. You question these things. Oh, absolutely. There but but is, like, it hasn't taken account of inflation. Completely. But yeah, I agree. I've seen that study, but it just, yeah. It's, it, it's very good. And so you begin to question these things and you begin to uh, quilt together a new worldview that is composed of the guy in Cambodia, the lady in Switzerland, the ice cream shop, and you become a more whole person. I think that's the most beautiful thing in the world. Like if I was going to sell some kid on some kid was like, sell me on travel. That's basically what I would say. Does, does that create more conflict for you? Because I had the same kind of mini epiphany when I started traveling. I just saw all these people. Like you said, there's a million and one ways to, to live the world and a million and one ways to make a living and be happy. And, and when you travel, you're exposed to it. And it's kind of like a slap in the face. And also this like tingly feeling of like, whoa, there's there's more out there. But does it does it create like an inner conflict for you? Because like you're like, okay, well, I, I could do that. But I'm also choosing to go home and live my way life, you know, mostly the way I've been living it. So do you get this like FOMO conflict thing after, or are you just happy that 
I got to experience it for a week, a two week period. And at least I'm more aware of like this exists. And now my worldview is uh, in a better place. I think there's definitely a conflict. I think that conflict is the root of like why a lot of people have wonderlust. But I think that the trade-off is a positive one. You go, you get to experience the fantasy of living this alternate reality, and you come back a more whole, interesting person. And you have that feeling of like, ah, fuck, the vacation's over, the trip is over. I know the word vacation is very controversial, but it's over. And that can be very painful. But I think that the trade-off is a positive one for sure. I mean, I can tell you. Well, I got got something that's a little more controversial because I I think what you're saying is like travel is wonderful and I agree. Uh, And I think everyone would agree. But like something that I find that I'm questioning is none of us have kids yet, but a lot of people on our Discord do. Mm -hmm. And I went with my parents when I was so young to like Sweden to visit relatives or to France, you know, cause my mom had a conference over there or whatever. And I, I did all these things and she even sent me to China once when I was like eight years old and I don't remember a damn thing about it. I don't remember a single thing. Like I right. have a flash of a memory of like, Oh my God, it's a lot of poverty well, here. Thank you for that information. I'm going to save like $300,000. Okay. So, but my question you know. is like, is this valuable to send your kids over there? Obviously not. No, if, yes. If yes. you forget all of it. Well, how, like, how old? Obviously though? not. He doesn't I remember mean, shit. From like birth to age eight, like there's not yeah. many memories I capture from going to all these places. No, but your your world, your brain was exposed to the idea of even traveling abroad. Yeah. Like, I never went internationally. Maybe it's as like a, riding a, a bike where you don't remember why, but you remember how to ride the bike. And I like incepted myself yeah. and then go traveling on my own. Are you saying that it actually made him a better person without In him realizing ways it? he can't recall he's not yes. even conscious yes like, of the fact that he had to walk up to the ice cream person in france and order the ice cream with somebody that didn't speak english if he was and eight, he overcame that absolutely aspect of what's uncomfortable. if he was like one probably not well okay. through throughout the whole time i could yeah, see that like, so i did i did a lot of travel young too and i i wonder now it's like well shit it's expensive to take a kid Across the across the world, so and like, yeah, is it worth kids it? Sitting in coach for sure. Yeah, yeah. I, I can't identify with this at all. The biggest trip I took as a child was Same. to Disney World. Yeah, I didn't or, go anywhere. Orlando, until Orlando yeah, okay. that, was, that was the shit. I didn't I was, go anywhere until I was like 22, 23. Yeah, so I I don't I don't identify with it either. But I do have this fantasy of like taking my kid or kids around the world with me. I think you should and right? giving them the experience of sitting in a German beer garden and some guy named Gustav going like, (laughs) why do you Americans have flags everywhere? What you don't don't realize is your kid is going to be like, Oh my God, I can't believe that that kid over there had a soccer ball. He doesn't remember Gustav at all. Like all he remembers is like, I got to kick a ball with uh, some kid and we played soccer. And that that's like, a flash of my memory from Hong yeah. Kong. Or it's he like, becomes a nihilist because Gustav is like, we believe in nothing. But like, <laughs> <laughs> you didn't travel till you're 22. I traveled when I was one and beyond and we ended up in the same place. So, yeah, I don't you know, know, it's interesting. That's, that's why I think that's like a little more controversial. It's like, of course, yeah. travel is valuable, but like at what age does it become? That, that, that's a good question. Why do you think people romanticize traveling so much everybody talks about movies. it everybody's like i want to travel i want to go to europe movies i want to sit in a french cafe eat a croissant because it is an innate desire for a huge majority of people like a lot of people have no desire but what, like, what is it, clear what, what is that. the root of that though what what, what do you think makes somebody the want same to reason get on we a plane want to, and the same reason we no, want I, to conquer the universe 
we're explorers. You're asking why you. See. You're asking why you think it's valuable, or why it is. No, why no, why like, it, it's it, there? We agree that there's this like romanticism about travel. Why like, the romanticism? You, there. Yeah, you, gotcha. you tell people like, "What do you want to do? What do you want to do?" And everybody's like, I "Okay, wanna, I, go I have a few quotes for you, Stephen." Oh, because I don't think God. I could do it as well. <laughs> this is what Steve is going for. He's taking yeah. you on for these. We travel. Trying to extract. We travel. Some of us forever to seek other places, other lives, other souls. It's like the choose your adventure, right? And I don't know how to say her name, but she's a great poet, Anais Nin. So here's one of my favorites from Anthony Bourdain. Big fan. R.I.P. R.I.P. Fucking, that was a sad one. Oh, I got a story for you on that. Travel isn't always pretty. It isn't always comfortable. Sometimes it hurts. It even breaks your heart. But that's okay. The journey changes you. It should change you. It leaves marks on your memory on your consciousness, on your heart, and on your body. You take something with you. Hopefully, you leave something good behind. I I, I like that quote. So, something resonated with me in that quote. Because when, when I travel, I have this like tendency to... I have traveled with people and they want to like wall themselves up in this like luxurious garden... Where they're in this they're like taking fancy America hotel, with them. and they like, but like I've always for at some I want to go and I I want to experience like a little bit of I don't know if pain is the right word, but I, I want to be uncomfortable. I want to just feel awkward, or I, I want to. But see, you're see describing a, everything that was mentioned between the vacationer slash tourist. And the traveler, the traveler seeks to break down their reality yes. and enter the reality of the locals. Like Eric was saying, when he go, went to Australia or when he looked at people and he was like, you're holding on to, it's like someone who took an elevator up into the sky from America or wherever they're from and took it with them and just landed down like fucking Willy Wonka <laughs> or something. And they landed in France, but really what they wanted to do was they wanted to safely look at France from inside their American bubble. Mm. And so why do you think they get into these situations where like, the French are dicks? It's like, no, you're the dick who doesn't want to actually merge and walk to the coffee shop and sit down and maybe say a few words in French and enjoy your coffee and a fucking croissant and connect with people. You're there because you want to go to the zoo and you want to do, you want to check off these boxes. Again, I've learned that that's actually okay. I think there are times in your life when you need that, but that is the difference. It's being uncomfortable. Can I build on that? Because yeah. I think this like discomfort thing is so important. And I, I like, I thought it was like you had to go by yourself. And when I, when I went by myself, what I got was um, you remove everything that you know, like there are no external forces anymore pressuring you to do what you're supposed to or what you think you're supposed to. It's literally you wake up, you're by yourself in a brand new place. You don't know anybody. And you have to ask yourself, what do you want to do today? Hmm. And you get to know yourself. You're like, oh shit. I, oh, I never really asked that. Like, what do you want to do today and design your day that's completely self-directed? I don't think many people like know the answer to that, honestly. Like I learned that going two years by myself. It was the most profound thing I've Is ever that done. because there's no routine that they typically had at home and they have to like recreate reality? It's, it's partially that. It's partially like you don't have expectation. There's no, there's no like parents around to be like, hey, how come you're not doing a job? There's no friends around to be like, hey, we're going here. There's not there's nothing around you 
it's literally just you being like, what do I like? Mm. And that's I, so I've always known you to be a very social creature, like to get along with almost any type of person in any situation. Did you notice that, did that increase after you traveled because you kind of had to force yourself when you're traveling on your own to go mm. meet people and definitely. talk to people or were you that prior? No, definitely. And it even begins before that. I, had, <clears throat> I moved in the middle of uh, high school and that was like my first uh, example of just like being removed from everything I'm used to. And uh, I actually failed. I failed the first time. Like I, when I moved in high school, I didn't make good friends. And I was like, analyze. I was like, what, what, what happened here? And, and I realized it was like, oh, I, I didn't try. I didn't try to assimilate. I didn't try. I was like built like what Armand said. I was like taking my past with me to be like, well, I'm this guy. And it's like, well, no, not necessarily. Like you can be whatever you want to be. And that's when I learned uh, that was my first example. And then like I felt like I had already gone to college already because like I had, had done this move. Right. So then when I got to college, I was like, oh, I'm used to this. And then it was like, now I get to meet everyone and I'm like so much more comfortable doing that. And I think everything kind of just like built off of that. I mean, to kind of parlay off, you know, the discomfort that you kind of had to force yourself into. And, and Steven saying he kind of wanted a little pain on the travel. Like, I, I remember some of our most memorable experiences being the things that went wrong. I was going to set you up for this, but thank you for on, just On the trip. Me. Like, I remember when we were going to Kilimanjaro, we landed in Nairobi and we had to take a, a, a well, a, just a car ride, a four or five hour car ride to to Tanzania to get close to the base of the mountain. Scariest ride of my life. Scariest ride of my life. I remember waking up Armand and, and some of the other guys on a trip. I'm like, get your knives out. <laughs> I, so I was dead but he serious. Wasn't, he wasn't, I was like, get your knife around. out. Like, yeah. And, uh, you know, we were traveling and on the way there, they, we got stopped and pulled over the car and the, the driver, you know, speaks in Swahili, tells us we got to pull over. And I'm like, why? He's like, well, they're robbing people up there. I was like, oh, Okay, well, yep. we'll, we'll, we'll stay uh, pulled over for as long as you need. In fact, why don't we just stay over till daylight? Because we were traveling in the middle of the night. And we are there for like two, three hours. And before the sun comes up, maybe like 4 a.m., 3 a.m., he's like... I mean, just imagine that like 20 minutes up the road, there were guys with AK-47s pulling travelers around yeah, or whatever. Yeah. And just and, being like, give me everything. <laughs> and, you know, at around 3 or 4 a.m., he's like, it's safe now. We're like... Well, like, yeah, there's only two hours till sure. daylight. Like, let's just play it safe. Like, what's the risk return of this? Like, you know, like, <laughs> I, know I was like, I'm doing good here. <laughs> yeah. He's like, trust me. Trust we me. Were, can, can we just describe the scene? Because <laughs> sure. this it was beautiful. It was beautiful. Go ahead. Well, I mean, like, we're on the side of a road. And dirt we, road. Yeah, a dirt, dirt road in the, in the middle of Africa. And uh, luckily, we got, you know, a chance to pull over in a little bar and our driver was kind of keeping an eye on us because he knows it was a bar. I mean, it was a little shack that had a, a bucket full of beers. It was, and we a, it was a fucking Coleman cooler. Nice. Yeah. With plastic chairs, one TV about 15 inches, and everyone just hanging around. a few around. locals, like there three or four locals. locals, and there was this like barbecue, essentially, and they were just cooking up and watching at like, like 1 a.m. They were hanging music out videos. 3 in the morning. Yeah, they're just hanging Watching out. music videos, like African music wow. videos. And hanging out. And it was like middle of the night, like 3 a.m. I love that. So he says it's safe to go. So around 3 or 4 a.m. we leave. And again, we're in the middle of, you know, the like kind of the Serengeti. I think we passed through there. Like as we're driving through this dirt road in the middle of the night, there are giraffes that are crossing in front. There's all kinds of wild animals. And anyway, about 45 minutes in the trip, there looks to be what looks like a roadblock ahead. There are cars that have blocked the road with flashlights two trucks and i'm like this is the people that are robbing us so i'm like you know i and you know armand's like 
whispers. He's like, do you think the driver's in on this? And I'm like, fuck, I didn't even think about that possibility. Like, get your knife out and like, wake up. <laughs> and like, I don't know, we might have to defend ourselves. And uh, anyway, it happened to be some like uh, government, you know, little local kind of like sheriffs, I think, helping the situation. But nonetheless, the the peak fear and everything that go wrong went wrong. We showed up very late. But that that story is one that I, I remember the most, that like pain, that discomfort, the things that go wrong are the, are the coolest things that you live through totally. when, when you travel. And so, yeah, I, I definitely- That's analogous to life itself though. Yeah. In, in the middle of it, it sounds like complete horror. Like we, why the hell do we even- We remember the discomforts and the trials and tribulations that's what gives life meaning. That's essentially a paraphrased version of a Sigmund Freud quote, actually. Like, that is what creates the meaning in your life. Like, those moments, more than anything. This bear market? But you... <laughs> <laughs> I hope so. Hey, stay on topic. Oh, sorry, sorry. Don't do that to me. <laughs> oh, I just, I just rem- reminded you that you have shorts that are in the but what I, Yes, I got it. I'm very underwater right now, but... What a, what Try I, not to think about it. What I was going to say is like, I think that's what it is for you, Nick. Like there's different people that travel for different reasons. Yours really appears to be one of seeking adventure and creating these like incredible arduous uh, experiences that then leave you with a deep sense of like, fuck yeah, I accomplished something. Yeah, I think you're, you're in a similar vein because you chose your bachelor party to be a two-week adventure in New Zealand where we hopped in vans and just rode around the country hiking and getting in kind of all kinds of adventures. And I think that that seems to be more valuable. And maybe as it's as you grow older, you get kind of the go in a club and party and drink your face off, you know, under your belt. And you realize that some of these experiences, whether it's nature or people of a different country or just a completely different environment. I remember one of the times we, we went to Japan and we hadn't been in a while and we show up and we're in the middle of Tokyo and you're just surrounded by an environment that's completely different. Remember, we looked at each other like, you remember this feeling like when you're in a completely different world, a completely different culture and the lights and the food and the smells Shocking. and the people, it shocks you in like a really like almost pleasurable, pleasurable way. Very pleasurable yeah. way. I was actually, that was going to be my next question is like, when you guys travel, do you feel different? Absolutely. Like, do you feel some sort of inexpl- like unexplainable, inexplicable, like, I, I, I don't know how to put it. Like there's this, um, goosebumpy, very weird, esoteric energy. Can I can I dare call it an energy? Do you feel of course different? Okay, of course. I'm not the only one. <laughs> Tell okay. me about it, Stephen. Well, I, I have this theory. I think people travel for two reasons. There's the traveler who travels for like pleasure, some sort of like hedonistic thing, and then there's the travel. I, I think all humans. Maybe not all humans, but a lot of humans have in this like built in, I don't know if it's like an affinity for or desire to live sort of what we consider to be like the hero's journey, right? It's a thing that makes itself into literature and song and movies. It's like, it's like a thing that we all identify with. And I feel like for a lot of us, like travel is like an attempt to live that out. It's like something that's just built into human nature for a lot of us. And what you described in your trip to Africa, like I was like, that's exhilarating. That's exactly what I want to like do. But I know a lot of people who would be like, that sounds terrible. Right. Like, never I would do never it. want to do that ever. Please. No. Right. So I think there are those two different people who want to travel. I think we probably all fall into the ladder bucket. So our 
tales of our travel and our favorite experiences and everything will probably be different than than most people's because like I feel like you like one of my favorite travel experiences was like in New Zealand when we we, we were doing one of those uh, great walks uh, the root burn track and we all got just so sick like before the oh, hike no. started like unbelievably sick I we were sitting in an Airbnb I left the house I got a hotel in town I was like I'm not going home screw you guys I'm gonna and like half the party left they just got up the next day left for they home, went home because they it was went so home. sick that they went bad? home they were so sick and like oh. three or four of us were just like no and we got up the next day and it was like raining <laughs> it was bad and we we thought we were gonna like not be okay and we we got on this trip and it was bad like one of our friends we thought he was gonna die we thought he wasn't gonna make it oh and God. then it, it was funny. Like it got to the one point where he was so bad. I was thinking about going back and like carrying him, but he's very large. So I, I couldn't <laughs> carry him. But then like he was overcome with this like thing. He's like, he's like, I'm going to die. I have to just go. And he just got up and he ran and he sprinted the entire trail. <laughs> he ran in at, before any of us got home. We got to like the, the, the little hut at the end and he was just like, uh, but like he did it. And like, some old lady in front of me slipped and like broke her freaking arm and hip like in oh, front yeah. of me. had to get helicoptered out it was, it was sideways raining it was it was like hell but also it was awesome because we were like in we were just in nature and we were just all sick as hell we we're just like oh my god but we just had to do it and then when we finished it in the end when we were talking about it it was it was like the best thing ever like that was totally like, oh, that's where we travel it's like a it's like this little mini journey of sort of like a primal significance, like in your life where yeah. you get to live out this. That's, that, that's like, that's what I want when I travel. Mm. I, I like the, I like, I like it to be a little messy, but then there's like a happy story. I, I think they do kind of fall in two buckets. Like there's, there's trips you take to get away mm-hmm. and there's trips you take to go into mm. like the Kilimanjaro trip or New Zealand or, mm-hmm. you know, living in Australia, you take a trip to go into that culture when I go to Cabo or, you know, Vegas, you know, like Hawaii, you take a trip to get away from what you were doing. And I, like, I, I think both have a, a good purpose, but the most memorable experiences, the life changing ones are the, you know, the ones yes. you remember. That's not most. what you yeah. anchor. So I know when you're on your deathbed, you're not going to remember that little Cabo trip you took. No you, way. You sipped a lot yeah. of Miami there's, vices or something. I think there's a lot of people out there that need a little bit of like a nudge as far as I feel like when i have conversations offline with people in real life i'm like one of the most common things that you hear people say is like when i x i will travel and to that person and then the other thing that's mainly holding them back beyond time and money is courage because they're not the type of person to do some of the things that we're talking about and to that person i honestly always say I'm like, this is the thing in life that you will regret not having done the most. Go do it, man. Like it is, you're going to survive. You're not going to die. Do you think there's um, hierarchies in terms of difficulty? Like if you're, if you're just starting travel, like I wouldn't send somebody Definitely. to India. First place first. I went like, was right? like, no, no, <laughs> oh, don't gosh. go pull a Chanteron. <laughs> you go, you go um, like Western no, Europe. No, no, yeah, England, Western Europe. Italy, France. Yeah, And like, that's yeah. where you like but wet your whistle. That's still I mean, a lot You can do it. it. My, my dad's never been to Europe. You can do it in a very adventurous way. 
Yeah, you can totally. still go to Spain, but I think you want to like and it can hit be Western hard Europe before hardcore. you start going. Yeah, gnarly. don't go, don't go to you know fucking Cambodia before you go to some, Spain. People, like, some people need to go to like Mexico. Yeah, first. so I'm like Mina is traveling for the first time. We're going for a honeymoon. She has never really like she grew up outside the United States, but she hasn't like traveled internationally. And I, I, I'm telling her like let's start small. Let's go to Western Europe and then like yeah. and then she wants to continue adventuring. It's like okay, well we can build from there. Oh, I'm excited. I didn't know that. I'm, yeah, yeah. I'm excited for you guys' honeymoon. Though. Yeah, I'm excited yeah, for you. Thanks. I, I am good. curious. Like, um, what are the best places you guys have been? I was going to ask you that. Well, you go first. Ah, uh, and right. why? My okay, my, my top it's a tie. My top two places uh, might be three, but I'm gonna go top two. My top two places are Italy and New Zealand. Mm. I love New Zealand, I seriously love both. New those. Zealand is my top, um, specifically the South Island of New Zealand. Yeah, I did enjoy going to Hobbiton for half a day in the North Island, it was really cool to take a picture in front of like Frodo's house yeah, <laughs> or Bilbo's house. Um, the movie set is very well done. Like when you take a photo with no filter, it looks incredible. Like they did a great job with that. But that aside, like I love the South Island. I loved Queenstown, especially. Oh, best city. I don't know if I would call it a city. Like if you would consider it a city, like I would though. say it's my favorite city in the world, but right. I would say it's a town. It's my favorite town. In the world, it is just totally it, agree. It's like breathtaking, breathtakingly beautiful. Like the landscape is so incredible. I There's, can't believe it's real. <laughs> it, like that's what I say every time I get down there. I'm just like, I can't believe this place is real. It's like the water and the mountains, and like you can do so much stuff. You can you can bike and you can paraglide and bungee jump and skydive and take ATVs and ride that jet boat that cuts through the river or you can stay in town and go to that little local rum bar and crush yep. rum or, or go to Fur Burger which has maybe the best burger I've had like I know it's a little cliche to say if no, you've been there really but like or I, going an it's an incredible yeah. Thing. yeah or there's a million hikes it's the the whole place is it, it's like a painting and it's this like protected habitat there's how big is the town like 50 yeah. or 60,000 people. Can't be more than 100, it's a good 000. size. So many expats. There's so many people who have like come there, right? And they, and they 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 protect it, right? Like you can't just come in as Jeff Bezos and buy like 20 houses on the hill. Mm-hmm. Right? So it like retains this element of kind of like the original people there and it's just it's just beautiful. I love it. And in the hikes, if you go outside of Queenstown, like the the Root Burn Track and uh, Mil- Milford or Milford Sound, mm-hmm. Milford, oh, Sound. Milford Sound. I took a holy shit. I took a another rickety one of those, like, rickety. How is this? So the first the real? first time I went there, I drove there right, and it's like a, we we played the you know the the Hobbiton thing, <laughs> like just just the whole way. We're like, oh, this is so good. Um, and the, but the second time we took a, like a prop plane there and just flew through the mountains and most of the people in the plane were having a heart attack, but I was like, this is so cool. <laughs> <laughs> and you, you just go right through the hills and fly and then you take this boat and you're, it, you're just in this, this place that is basically inaccessible to anybody else except by these humans who carved out this path through the hills and everything. But it's yeah. like this, this beautiful place that was carved up by a glacier. It's. So much of it is it's got this unbelievable combination of like nature and and culture and I I love it so much. That's my favorite place. 
Italy's probably my second favorite place. Uh, I'm not going to rant about it for too long, but I, I, I am Italian. I had an amazing time. Rome was okay, but like, yeah. like Tuscany, Florence, and the Cinque Terre were like my just favorite places. Just absolutely beautiful. Like, I love them so much. Uh, might go back next week. Actually, I'm thinking about it. But next I, week, I looked awesome. at. We're I supposed to record flights. a podcast. What are you next talking week? about? Well, I'll record it for leave a Thursday hotel. morning. Uh, like <laughs> the, uh, the, uh, the the gas prices and the flights are not great, but like, uh, yeah, but the I'll, Euro I'll, is at parity. So yes, that was a main driving factor. <laughs> but I, I want to hear about Armand's because yeah. I'm sure he has no, some no, great ones. Guys, well, I have to say that was one of the best pitches of New Zealand I've ever heard in my life. Like. Yeah, should, it's good. Should, I mean, it's. it's I'm, I'm trying cool. to have the government let me buy a plot of land there. So yeah, <laughs> you want multiple multiple passports? I'd say I'd say New Zealand up there the most. The the Kilimanjaro trip was by mm. far one of the most memorable. I'd also say favorite cities is like uh, Tel Aviv. I, I love Tel Aviv. Mm. It's on the Mediterranean. You know, people get caught up in like all the conflict in the region, but you don't understand. There's like beautiful people, food, you know, environment, culture there. Um, to- Tokyo and even like I'd say the most underrated places are like Kyoto and out- on the outskirts of uh, Tokyo. So I don't know. I'd, I'd put those in the top. And uh, I'm trying to get uh, Nepal and Bhutan on the on the, on the future list. I feel like that's going to make your top. Yeah. One of those is going to be. Up I hope there. so. I hope so. We'll see. What's your uh, Damn. What's your favorite? <laughs> I, I don't care much for uh, like I can appreciate the beauty of New Zealand. I don't I don't care much for it like. I don't care much for Australia, despite the fact that people are cool, culture's cool. Yeah, I like, agree. Australia like, sucks. All these like all these English speaking ones aren't um, adventurous enough. I, I I like going in a place where you you can't bring your past with you. You you have to like Bangkok. Plug yourself into somewhere brand new, and you have to like assimilate. I like that better. Um, places I find myself going back to all the time: Italy. I just love the mm. food. I, mm. I'm going like smaller and smaller towns now. Um, Tokyo out of this world. And then uh, Mexico City is another city that I um, just fell in love with. Oh, I mean, wait, wait you have, just, you guys, have you guys been to Tokyo? Oh, yeah. 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 Uh, That's How good is Tokyo? Tokyo is number one. Yeah, I, I, I wanted to put Tokyo up there. It's just too many have good Have you places. been to Osaka? No, I want to go back oh, to Osaka. Osaka I know. Another, and, uh, it's alien compared the, to Tokyo. What's and the other what's As the weird other as Tokyo Japan, everybody is, says to go? Kyoto. Kyoto. Kyoto yeah. Yeah. As weird yes. as Tokyo is compared to to here, Osaka is as weird oh, compared I, to Tokyo. I think it's a good, this brings up another point that's like everything's so subjective. And when you're in a place for a short amount of time, it's very like can be influenced by one little interaction mm. with a person or with like oh, something. Yeah. So like I didn't feel like I liked Osaka or Kyoto at all. And hmm. like I think that's partially just because like w- like who did you run into when you were there like why struck you you know like who I, are you with what I you just have? remembered like one of the trips that I that I took that I if for some reason it. I don't know, skip my memory, but it was, is in Thailand training Muay Thai for two weeks. Like speaking about going in and being part of the culture, we didn't drink, we didn't go and party. We went and trained Muay Thai and, and lived at the camp and they fed us food and we slept in their places and, and trained and just got our asses kicked. But like, that was another part where, especially, you know, hours outside of Bangkok and the countryside was amazing. I forgot about Thailand. I love Thailand too. I had an amazing time there. All right. Next part is remote. Learn how to dive. Oh yes, that would be. Armand, eat, what are your Thai spicy food? Like cry it. It was. It was beautiful. I hate questions of favorites. Uh, I just don't have favorites. But you top, have a list ready. Top five. I know. Okay, so <laughs> <laughs> I was thinking about this. I'm like, there's different personalities you have, and then that personality seeks certain types 
of places and experiences, right? So like midnight in Paris, Armand, <laughs> if that can be one character. As or like version a character in a the, romantic novel that yeah, you write yeah. yourself that, into. That, Gil that character, Gil, Gil Armand Pender, <laughs> would just like absolutely adores. So Italy is, I think, heaven on earth in so many ways. It is the most beautiful culture, place, scenery, food, a pace of life, everything about it is just so, so good. And it just feels like something uh, uh, that that shouldn't exist. Like you go to certain places like the Amalfi Coast. I haven't even seen most of Italy yet. I still haven't been to Sicily. I still haven't been to... Um, Florence, by the way, for me was a place like when we talked about, mm. I wish we had gone deeper into that. Like, I think that's worth exploring again. Like places when you travel, you just feel different. It's otherworldly. Like your energy changes. There's an energy to, to the, and I think really what's actually happening is that it's so otherworldly and so different and so unique that you actually might be releasing the same chemicals that you released when you were a child. So the level of novelty is so high that you're high, your brain is high, and everything around you is so new that you're more alert than you've ever been before. And you're finally out of that like zombified trance state of like the drudgery of your daily life and existence that you're awake and you're in tune and you're paying attention to people and you feel really fucking good. Like, I think that's what's happening. That's my... Did did, did you see the David when you were in yeah. Florence? Yeah, like it, it's kind of crazy being. You, you, I I didn't think it would be a big deal, but when I was like right in front of it, I was like, "Oh shit!" Like this, this is a big deal. Like this, I mean, this, everything's a big deal there. Like you there walk is a by, lot it's like, there. oh, Michelangelo, yeah, yeah he's right there. <laughs> <laughs> Everything is ridiculous there. Like the churches you see the. It's 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 absurd. It's overwhelming. I mean, it, I mean, is there a place that's like more just exploding with like sort of like the cradle of like I art and so. culture than Florence? I don't it's, think it's so. It's kind of crazy. No, what's and there. it's a beautiful city. Oh, it's so beautiful. And like, I don't we, think there is a place more like that. Oh, um, I love Florence. So other than that, um, and I don't know, I don't believe that it can be recreated again to the same degree. But I went to Cuba like before Americans could go to Cuba. Mm. I did it by, I don't know, does this shit matter? Is it too late? I don't know. I did it by just like going through Mexico Mm -hmm. and uh, didn't get my passport stamped. This was like pre-Obama. I think it was like 2011 or 2012. And it was pre-internet. I stayed at Hotel Nacional which was the only place in Cuba that had internet federal hotel. And it was like, okay, the places where you could stay at like people's family residences didn't exist yet. I had the most unbelievable, you know, experience. Like I don't think I could ever recreate the magic of like, it was to the degree where like in midnight Paris, when he's going by horse and carriage and like getting in those old cars and going around places, it was like that. Like, I was literally transported through time. And the guy that I thought was just going to be like some gimmicky horse and carriage guy ended up being my fucking sensei and like showing me around Havana 
and taking me to places that you could never dream of. So like, I don't know if you could recreate that, but I think Cuba is a very special place. Cambodia for me, for some reason, like also hit at that where I find them to be the most optimistic, positive, interesting, introspective people that I've probably ever met. Like the people, and Phnom Penh is known as like this absolutely terrible, disgusting, chaotic capital. But for me, that chaos, like what you were saying, Eric, of like, I want to go to a place where I don't feel like myself anymore and I have to hit the reset button. For me, that was Cambodia. And most people go to Siem Reap. They want to go see like Angkor Wat and just like live that experience. For me, all of that was amazing. But but Phnom Penh, the capital, was just like, holy fucking shit. Like, where am I? Um, and going to Africa, like Africa is one of those places I've been to South Africa and East Africa. I've never been to West Africa. Would love to go there. But Africa is like, talk about an awakening, man. Like it mm. is so real and beautiful and raw and exciting. And you learn so much from the people and their way of life is so different that it just does what I was mentioning earlier. It just puts you in that place where you really truly wake up and you're alive. Uh, there's no other way to describe it. But I go to the same places very frequently. Like I'm not a country chaser. I think I've been, I was looking it up. I've been to 48 countries, but I've probably been abroad. 48? Well, I've probably been to many of them Damn. three times. I've been to Japan <laughs> three times. I've been to Netherlands four times. I've been to Spain four times. I've been to Italy three times. Like, I've probably been to 70, I've probably gone abroad, you know, 75 times, but I go to the same places often because I'm not, I'm not checking a box. It's quality. I feel like I have so many questions for you. Wait, I have a proposal. What if we turn this into our first split episode? (laughs) I'm really enjoying this discussion. I want to turn it into its own thing. Too late. I'm having a great time. (laughs) Dictator move. Yeah. Dictator move. Is the Academy Awards music is starting to creep up. I can hear it. Right. Well, I'm going to clap so Giorgio can edit this out. Now I'm going to go to the bathroom real quick because I have to pee. But I was I was enjoying it. I know it's well, really it's, good. It's fine. It's cut really it out. good. Cut it out. I'll end it. I'll so end many it. More questions to ask. I know, Stephen. I'll end it. I'll end it. <laughs> okay, he's screaming in the background. I think we should wrap it up here. I'll end it with a quote. Yeah. Stuff your eyes with wonder. Live as if, live as if you dropped in and dead in 10 seconds. See the world. It's more fantastic than any dream made or paid for in factories. Ray Bradbury. Very great author, by the way. Bravo. That's a wrap. Thank you, guys. Love you. Love you, guys. Bye-bye. Bye.